Is this book just a whole, like, an excuse for a giant pun? Like, is it just built around Maybe. that? There's your Terry Pratchett-isms, <laughs> right? You, you were looking too small. You had to zoom out <laughs> to see it. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month, we're reading the long Who's Who-topia or The Beatles' Greatest Hits. <laughs> and our returning guest is writer and editor Dianne Sheldon Collins. Welcome, Dianne. Hello, thank you for having me back. And may I say what an honour to be back for episode 69 of all episodes. <laughs> I would not have missed that one. <laughs> Very nice time to come back. Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, getting that out of the way nice and early at the top of the podcast. Uh, every podcast that lasts any distance has to get through. Oh, it's not going to be the only time. Episode 69. Oh, it's not? Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. I thought I should get it first because I knew there would be a lot. Okay. Well, look, it's been two years since we last had you on to talk about book two in this series, The Long War. Yes. which famously didn't really have a war in it. Uh, you can go back and listen to that episode list now. We'll put <laughs> links to all of those previous ones in the episode notes. What have you been up to for the last couple of years? Oh, getting by, I think, as most people have been in this COVID age. I, I won't say post-COVID because it is still out there, but post-lockdown anyway. Mm. But no, I've been well. And I think just before I was on here last time, I just started a new job and I'm still in that job and really enjoying it and freelancing as a writer and editor as well. So yeah, plodding along, doing well. <laughs> And uh, look, we do also want to acknowledge that you have made a greater effort than many of our guests, not to disparage any of them, but you and Joel, who've been reading for this series, have to read an extra book in order to catch up uh, <laughs> because you're only doing every second one. So thank you. You'd read The Long Mars before you read this, just so you were on the same page as the rest of us. How did you find that? Oh, it was really interesting, actually. We'll probably go into this later, but one of the things I find interesting about this series is that it doesn't really feel like five discrete books. It feels like one book big book that's a collection of interlinked vignettes. So in my mind, The Long Mars and The Long Utopia are just like one big book that I'm going to be discussing with you today because they kind of blur into each other. But at the same time, there are some things that are very distinct about them, like The Long Mars, as you established when you talked about it. Uh, it doesn't have a huge amount of plot and the structure has its flaws, whereas this one, as I'm sure we'll discuss, has quite a different structure and quite a lot of plot comparatively. I did enjoy The Long Mars more than I thought I would because The Long Mars had some of the strongest world building plot-wise and character-wise. It was flawed, but it had some of the most amazing scenes because that was the book where they really, I felt, leaned into the idea of exploring the multiverse. So I'm glad that I read it for this. And I think a lot of things that happened in the long utopia probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense to me if I hadn't anyway. Um, yeah. Well, we'll see how much we understand the long Mars <laughs> on its own as we go on. <laughs> I mean, not the Long Mars, the Long Utopia. See, now you've got me merging the two books. <laughs> uh, it's not head, just me. Which is interesting. <laughs> well, no, because as I will say, I actually thought of them as very distinct. So I'm really interested to see 
how you thought of them as sort of glomming together as one story, whereas I feel like they couldn't be more different mm-hmm. in some ways. But we should get into it because there's so much to say about the Long Utopia. We should begin with our traditional reading of the blurb. It is the middle of the 21st century. The cataclysms of Step Day and the Yellowstone eruption have sent humanity out into the long earth. Society, on a battered datum earth and beyond, continues to evolve, and new challenges emerge. In a far distant world, a cantankerous and elderly lobsang lives with Agnes in the community of New Springfield and endeavours to lead a normal life. They even adopt a child. But there are rumours of hauntings, strange sightings in the sky. On this world, something isn't right. Millions of steps away, Joshua receives an urgent summons from New Springfield. Lobsang believes that what is blighting his earth now threatens all the worlds of the long earth. To counter this will require the combined efforts of humankind, machine, and the superintelligent next. And some must make the ultimate sacrifice. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, I hate that blurb. Like, <laughs> yeah. It gives away half the book. At least half the book, and it gives away a major point about the end of the book. I mean, I know they give away that point like right at the beginning about who makes the ultimate sacrifice, but not all of the homes. But, yeah, like just sort of rushes past Mm -hmm. 50% of what the book spends its time doing, and it ignores the plot point that is my favourite part of the book entirely. Yeah. Yeah, it gives away like so much of what's going on. Like it it reveals like something about Lobsang that, I mean, we find that out pretty quickly, but all of the flashback to Joshua's past, which to me was the most interesting part of the book, just not mentioned. It's weird that this just occurred to me, like we always read the blurb at the start of every episode, but I actually never read the blurb before I read any of the books for this show because I don't want to go in with any preconceptions. And most of the Discworld ones, they're fine. Like they don't give away anything that you don't want given away. But these Long Earth ones, yeah, they're kind of like one of those trailers where it's so many scenes from so much of the film that you might as well have already seen it by the time you get to the theatre. <laughs> I've seen every best moment. It's also like, who's needing a blurb to make them read this book? Like, if you're reading this book, you're here for a reason. Like, you've you've done the others. No one is starting with this. (laughs) Or if they are, I feel very sorry for them. (laughs) That's what the blurb should be, though. This is book four in a series. Don't start with this one. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably wise. Although one of the main plot lines in this book, I feel like could kind of sit by itself in many ways. But we'll... (laughs) Well, okay, yeah, two of them at least. Why don't we get into them? And I think let's adopt the same kind of strategy we did for The Long Mars, which is we we can't go through this chronologically through the book. We'll do the three main storylines separately is going to be the most sane way to try and approach this book, I think, because just like all the other books in this series, it jumps back and forward through time and it splits up the different plot lines and chapters. I found it a bit weird in this book, particularly, I, I didn't like it where it's got like 50 chapters but sometimes there'll be one chapter of one story and then one chapter of another story. And other times there'll be like four or even more chapters in a row that are the same storyline. I found that really interesting in this book because I felt like this had a lot more kind of focused small character arcs. Like in the previous books, if I had more than two chapters with a particular plotline or character, I felt like I was getting so much screen time with that character because it would usually, so often you'd have like one person and one chapter onto the next person in the next chapter. Whereas when, for this one, there were places where you had four or five chapters focused on like one story directly following on from what had happened in the previous chapter. And that felt like a luxury at this point in the series. I was like, oh my God, we're actually getting more than five paragraphs with these people. Like I'd actually, and I think it did help the characterization. Like I actually, 
felt like I was sitting down with, for example, Agnes and Lob Sang and Ben, um, their Ben, sorry, not you, Ben. <laughs> and There's two Bens in this book as well. It's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Like, this is going to be confusing. And like, I actually felt like I was getting time with them and getting to know them and what was happening with them. So that I thought was really interesting compared to the previous books. But you are also right that it still meant that there was quite a lot of dipping in and out of different stories through the book. And in some ways, I think that almost made me notice more when we moved on to another storyline because it was like, okay, we've gotten our concentrated five chapters of this person and now we're not going to hear about them for a while. And when we do, it's going to have been two years later because there were time jumps between those chapters and bigger time jumps, I think, than the previous books. Like this book spanned, I mean, it started off seven years later than where the last one ended. So there's already nearly a decade between books. And then I think it spanned 2052 to 2058. So in the course of this one book, we jumped about six years and sometimes it was like two years between chapters. Yeah. The Long Mars has like that five-year gap, mm. but most of that five years happens in the first mm. couple of chapters. And then the rest of the book is all over the course of one year yeah. and is more or less in chronological order, just jumping back and forth between those two main storylines. Whereas this one, yeah, it's back and forth all over the place. Mm. And that's been a feature of the first couple of books in the series as well. But I think in this one in particular, because the plot lines were focused I found that more difficult in a way because I wasn't just trying to assemble a bunch of stuff into a history. I was trying to follow a fairly full-on plot. I found it easier, actually, this one to follow because of that grouping that Dion was saying, because you can sort of get your head around what these people are doing, who they are for a while. So like from, from my brain, it just sort of allows me to consolidate that a bit before we're like thrown to some like other time, another story that maybe I'm less interested in. But if it's like, here's one chapter of this guy and then another chapter of that guy and then we're going to jump back here. I'm just like, who are, what's going on? Where are we going? Who are these people? I can't remember where I was going. So it made it easier to keep track for me because you get more story happening in mm. a block than having to piece together bits of story over the book, which I find difficult to keep track of sometimes. And sometimes in this book as well. That's fair. Yeah, I think that this is the book where we needed that ability to follow what was happening more because it was more plot heavy and there was a lot happening that um, had to be connected. And I think if we'd also had that like jumping from one chapter to one chapter to one chapter, I would have had no idea what was going on by the end of this book. I still only had like a bit of an idea, but I think I had more of an idea <laughs> than mm. I would have otherwise. <laughs> That's fair enough. Well, look, the first chapter too, very traditionally for a long earth book, does that within the chapter where we just get these little scenes of various things that have happened since the last book. It's not really a previously on it, although there is a lot of that in this book, which we'll touch on, but it is more of a sort of, here's the state of affairs or here's some stuff that's happened since the last time that you don't know about yet. So in that first chapter, we established things like our main character, Joshua Valiente, famous natural stepper, hero of Step Day, author of The Journey, protagonist of these books, but no longer a major figure in Earth history as far as most people are concerned, even though he's doing a lot behind the scenes. He's off somewhere in the high megas. It doesn't actually say where exactly he is, feeling his headaches again. He's got this sort of history of having headaches when something weird's happening on the long Earth. They mention a lot of his past in this book, but they don't mention like what I always thought was kind of the coolest idea about him which was that his first moments of consciousness outside of his mother were alone on a whole world. Mm. And that kind of, I always thought was meant to explain why he's so sensitive to the pressure of other minds. So, you know, he has these headaches when first person singular, the giant organism is coming in the first one. He has the headaches or he can sense something's off with the trolls in the second one. And last time, I don't think he had any headaches in the long Mars, but he sort of knew something was up. 
I'm pretty sure it's in the Long Mars where he wakes up and is like, what now at the very start? Because he has sensed something going on. And then at the end, when they decide not to blow up the next at Happy Landings, he says, my headache's gone now. So I think we made the right choice. <laughs> but that's about <laughs> it. In terms of his headaches. <laughs> I, don't, I can't think of too many books I've read where headaches are a major part of the plot, mm-hmm. though I am about to read a new translation of Journey to the West where mm-hmm. that is a, a part of the plot. So we'll, I guess we'll find out if that compares. Important headache representation and I'm here for it. <laughs> uh, so we've got him, we've got him, and he's nearly 50 now, which gives us an idea of how much time has passed because when we first meet him, I mean, well, he's a newborn baby <laughs> at one point, but then, you know, he's a teenager. I think he's like 14 when Step Day happens. and Yeah, now he's 50, so time has marched on. We established that in the first chapter. We also established that on one particular world, and this is one thing I really missed in this book, is that we don't visit a lot of different worlds and find a lot of weird places, and very few of the places we go have numbers, which I kind of love about the other books that all the worlds are numbered because it just makes my wiki editor spreadsheet loving brain go, yes, I can number these worlds and know which one is which. But we do get our first taste of the major world for this book, Earthwest 1,217,756, the location of a settlement called New Springfield. And in that first chapter, there's a character we will never meet again. Sadly. Yeah, well, she seems cool. Um, Cassie Paulson, she's just digging her own cellar and meets a weird alien silver beetle creature. That was such a horror-moving moment as well, just the the way it's, <laughs> it started off with Cassie never told anyone about what she found when she was digging the cellar. She tried to forget about it for years. I was oh, my God, I feel like I've just suddenly switched genres into a horror film. <laughs> yeah, and her friends drinking lemonade nearby while this is happening, Just ma- it was just like a whole... Yeah, and the way it's like she felt safe because there were people drinking lemonade a few yards away, and then this, like, otherworldly glimpse happens, and she is just like, you know what, I'm going to board up that hole and pretend that never happened. <laughs> she should have boarded it up better, though. Like, I'd be like, yeah, that's the initial one, but now I'm going to be just, like, th- putting dirt in there. Like, it's just I'm going to be doing more yeah, stuff. Yeah, because by the time Nico – is it Nico or Nikos? I can't remember. Sorry, I think it's Nikos. I think it's Nikos. Yeah, but Nikolash. then Nikos finds it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the time he finds it, um, he it's it, there's some description that says that the board the planks have rotted over, but it looks like it used to be quite a secure. And I I thought, well, okay, fair enough. She boarded it up securely for the time, but she didn't go back and like reboard it up or anything. She really did just want to go. I'm pretending that never happened. I've dealt with like plugged in that hole, and whatever happens after that is someone else's problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've also left. I mean, that whole settlement gets abandoned. Mm. And this is one of the things where there's a lot of commentary. And this is, you know, again, a running theme throughout the series. Not only do things happen in the plot, but we're explained how that is emblematic of what's happening to society. And so the long utopia of the title is kind of this idea that when people first went out into the long earth, they were like pioneers in the American West. Like they'd find a nice plot of land, they'd build some houses, they'd set up a farm, they'd build a traditional kind of community in the way that, you know, Western society understands it. They'd build a town basically. And then you had this sort of alternative to that that emerged in the second and third books of the Comas, who were people who didn't really live anywhere in particular. They just roamed throughout the long earth because there's just so much stuff. Like you could just live off like finding apples and stuff, you know, like there's so much of it. And then in this book, they kind of show this sort of third middle way, which I think is what we're meant to think of as the utopian ideal, which is that you kind of do have a home base, 
but you kind of roam a few worlds in a little band either side going to wherever it's most comfortable and where the fruit is in season or like you've eaten enough of the local wildlife here, you're going to give them a rest now, step a few worlds to the west and eat the wildlife there for a while and the wildlife has time to recover. You don't sort of destroy the world in traditional human fashion. And that's what happens in New Springfield is that most of the families go, it's not really worth our while to set up a farm here. We don't need it on this belt of earths in what they call the Valhalla belt, one of many references Very relevant to another book we'll be covering sometime soon, Strata, some of Terry Pratchett's old ideas coming back. But all these worlds are very warm. They have a lot of forest and so a lot of wildlife. And there's not really any point in farming. You just sort of roam around hunting and gathering the more or less infinite resources. I found that fascinating. And we might talk about this more later, but I think one of the big themes of this book was intergenerational change and particularly through the um, sort of sub-theme of parenthood because that was something that came up quite a bit. And I think that's part of the reason that they had quite a few time skips in this book because I was thinking about it. This book takes place essentially 40 to 45 years after Step Day. And so Mm. I think one of the overall themes of the series – is exploring what happens in the very first generation after cataclysmic change, like after the world has changed, how does humanity evolve to the new environment and what new lifestyles and societies develop out of that? And I think that's very literally represented in that scene Joshua has with his family at the start where you've got Jack representing like the old generation, you've got Joshua and Helen representing kind of different sides of a middle generation who's aging now. And then their son, Dan, now Rod, who represents kind of this emerging young generation. And the way that they've moved from this pioneering lifestyle to this hunter-gatherer lifestyle, it's sort of open for debate how much of that is naturally evolved and how much they might have been pushed into that by other factors like the next, you know, moving strings behind the scenes. But it does seem to be a bit of a message about how the natural next step of evolution is moving back to this hunter-gatherer way of living, but also with what they call the cheats where they, you know, they still use the more advanced technology that's accessible to them if it's going to help. So it's kind of a hybrid hunter-gatherer thing, which I found really interesting. And I was fascinated by that concept and the way it was really um, exemplified by New Springfield because right from the start, we just get this insight into this whole other world that's sort of recognizable as our own society, but so different and so nostalgic for what was only like 15 to 20 to 40 years ago, the norm. Like that's the world we know. This is still within living memory, but it's like a whole different world for kids like Nikos who don't even remember that old way of life. Yeah. And there's some great lines that exemplify that. There's one that Rod said that stuck out to me. And I think we're going to follow Joshua's family storyline first. And he starts off, you know, getting his headache out in the high megas. He's about to turn 50. He goes, you know what? I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go see my family. And then I think what I want to do on my birthday is I want to travel 100,000 steps in one day. So I'll go from Reboot, where my ex-wife, Helen, who I'm sure we'll have much to say about in a moment, and my son, Rod, now live with Helen's dad. I'm going to go from there. And that's about 100,000 steps back to the datum. I'm going to do that in one day. That's what I want to do on my birthday. He doesn't really explain why. And he just kind of says, why not? When asked. But he goes back to the house. We'll talk about the conversation he has there. But when they're flying on from there, they're looking down and it's so dark. And Joshua says something about that. And Roger says, that's normal to me. Mm. A planet isn't supposed to glow in the dark. And I'm like, yeah. That was such a good line. Yeah. There's little bits like that where it comes out naturally. And there's so many bits where it kind of feels a bit like a sociology textbook. Mm. You're not quite sure whose point of view you're getting 
when it's telling you how society has changed. But then there's some nice lines in there that sort of give you that personal perspective as well. But what, maybe we'll go back to the start of Joshua's journey. He does go back to Reboot, which is the town that Helen Green, as her name was at the time, established with her father, Frank, back in the first book, The Long Earth. And we got her little diary entries and Joshua first met her when he was passing through Reboot right at the end of that first book. But now they're back there living there and he goes back there to meet up with his son, who's now a young man. He's no longer a little boy like he was in The Long War when we first met him. I just want to slap Joshua a lot of the time. Like I like him as a character sometimes, but he'll do stuff where you're like, can you just for half an hour think of someone else? Like I know he's like a big hero and all of that, but he can't show up a little bit earlier so that he can spend some time with his family or his ex-wife who has like made him a meal, all of this stuff. He's like, no, i got to go immediately so I can go do my journey for no reason because my birthday and I want to do it on my birthday. I don't know. He's... He feels well rendered, but yeah. I think Joshua is meant to represent someone who's like, as he calls himself, a split soul, who's got this divide between wanting to be like a home and hearth man and wanting to be like out traveling the long earth. But I think the actually, as you say, Liz, I think the execution of that often just makes him come across as quite selfish. (laughs) Like it's Mm. not so much he feels tied between two different ways of life as that he's just figuring himself out and maybe having a bit of a like extended midlife crisis where he's not quite sure what his purpose is and he sort of wants to have his cake and eat it too. Yeah, and I felt most for him when after he has that trip with his son and he's sort of reflecting on how he feels like he's failed again, like he just hasn't done Mm -hmm. it right and so he feels – and that's where I was kind of like, oh, yeah, you get that you're being a jerk here too. I agree about the split soul thing, but he's 50 and, yes, maybe he's having a midlife crisis, but he sort of like strolls in as a 30-year-old, impregnates like a 19-year-old, sort of has a family for a little while and he's like, nah, I'm going to just like traipse around. Mm -hmm. And and I understand there's something deep inside him that needs to do that, but – you can be like that, but also be considerate, mm, mm. at least in pockets. Even if you're only seeing your family a couple of times, like every decade, just give an extra half hour to sit down and have a meal. Like, Especially because it's clear that he is welcome there. Like even though his marriage has broken up, it's not like there's a sense that he's been exiled from the homestead and he's only there on sufferance. Like if anything, you kind of get the impression Helen would like him to stay a bit longer, even if things are tense between them. She doesn't want him out of their lives. So he is welcome there. It seems like him staying away is his choice because it's just too difficult to be there. Hmm. Yeah. My read on it was kind of that he's oblivious a little bit because you're right. He absolutely does have those moments of self-reflection. Like there's one bit where when he first sees Rod, he's simultaneously proud of the young man that he's become, but also kind of disappointed and sad that they're so distant from each other. And you're like, well, whose fault is that, buddy? (laughs) Like, come on. The characterization or this the screen time of Joshua's family has been such in these books that when his son first appeared and they called him Rod, I thought they'd just forgotten the name of his son. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh, my God, they can't even remember that his son's called Dan. And then a paragraph on, I'm like, all right, all right, fine. They, he's deliberately made that choice. Okay. But I genuinely believed for a minute that they just couldn't remember his name. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, fun parallels between like the terrible dads, George, as they keep putting in exclamation mm. marks. I'm like, please stop. We understand that, that we don't need the exclamation mark. I'm not the exclamation mark, the quotation yeah. marks. Yeah. And Joshua, like, I'm like, yep, we get they're both crap dads. It's fine. Yeah. And that's why I love that theme of parenthood as well. Like, I think that there was something interesting that they were trying to do there. And sometimes I think it worked quite well. But there was a kind of an echo of Joshua in Lobsang in the way that at the very end, Agnes just randomly decides to leave Lobsang because she's like, I don't think he's going to be a good father. I want to take Ben away. 
and how Lobsang's family kind of just dissolved at the end. And I was like, is this meant to be like mm-hmm. a reflection of what happened with Joshua? Is it meant to be a message here about these guys who have this kind of mission across the long earth just can't live these happy family lives that life is not meant for them? I just, I wasn't quite sure what the message was there, but I think there was meant to be some sort of parallel. Mm. Well, this is kind of where I was going because I feel like the characters are, if not oblivious, just don't prioritize those things. But what really came through strongly to me is that the authors just didn't care about that. Mm. They just don't care. Mm. Like they're not interested in telling us the interpersonal story Mm. of these people. That's so secondary to what they're trying to do in these books that they really have put the bare minimum in. And so, you know, we never really learn how that marriage broke down. Or, I mean, we, we're given clues in The Long Mars, which is where we first find out that it's happened, which is basically that he spends too much time away from home. But that's something you can talk about and work out if you're, you know, rational adults and you want the relationship to work. But clearly they didn't. But we never find out any more about how that works or how often he's been home. Like there's not really much of a good hint. It's not often, but we don't know how often. Mm. There's just so much that I wanted to know because it just came across this, yeah, he's just a crap dad, but it's just the way he is. And the book is fundamentally disinterested in telling us about that part of the story. So like Sally has yeah. the same loner tendencies as well, but she doesn't even attempt to make a family that she at her heart knows that she is not fully invested in. Yet these two characters do like at different times in their lives, mm. but it's like they view it as something we can try and it is disposable. Yeah. And I wonder if Partly that's because Sally has had experience on the other end of that. Like she has a really terrible father. And so she has seen and experienced firsthand what actually happens when you've got that neglectful parent who doesn't prioritize you over their like big purpose in life that's beyond you. Maybe that's part of why she's like, no, I'd rather be a lone wolf than do this. Whereas Joshua and Lobsang don't have parental figures. So they probably had a certain naivety where they thought they could make it work and just didn't understand the actual realities of that responsibility. Mm. And I mean, Sally also has memories of quite a nice childhood. Mm. Like when she was very young, she and her dad and her mum got on really well. Mm. And it wasn't until later that he became mm. basically a jerk. So kind of like Rod, yeah. really, because he, I think he had a pretty good first 10 years with um, Helen mm. and Joshua. Like that the gap between books one and mm. two seems to have been when the marriage was at its happiest. You kind of get the impression that there were fault lines there that were highlighted later on. Like it was probably never an entirely happy marriage, but it seems like mm. Rod had a pretty good childhood with his dad at the start. Mm. Mm. And Helen sort of has that commentary about her kind of pragmatic attitude towards marriage because uh, she's going to get remarried to another Ben, the other <laughs> Ben in the book, Ben Doak, who is a character from the first book. He's one of the other young settlers of Reboot when it's first established. So he's about the same age as her. And her dad is ragging on her for marrying this young geeky dude. And she's like, we don't live in a big city where there's lots of people. I don't have a lot of options. And he's nice. <laughs> yeah, I found the conversation really interesting and, and sad um, because she's basically saying, mm. look, I don't have options. I have to settle for security. Like, it's just what helps you survive out here, which was a um, quite bleak way of looking at it. But I also, I wondered what that was saying about her marriage with Joshua. Was the implication that that had never really been a true love match either? Like, that was just convenience and necessity? Or was the implication that it actually, she had loved Joshua and that hadn't worked out. And now she's like, you know what? I, I'm not looking for love. I'm just looking for someone who'll stick around. I think it's that one because this, mm. this famous guy who's this big adventurer blitzes into her small town and chooses her. And it's kind of like her big love, everything. She's invested everything into it. And it's been a long time since that marriage broke down as well. So mm. I think it's self preservation. Like this guy's mm. not going to 
bail to go sit with his headaches over there and not come back for dinner, even on his birthday. Like it's just, yeah, it's self-preservation after probably what was a world of hurt that she hasn't Mm. expressed. Yep, I think so. And um, I thought there was an interesting little parallel there to a comment that Stan made later on about how uh, love is a human illusion. And I mean, that kind of ties in with the whole thing about the next and their relationship with emotions. But I did think that that was an interesting little parallel, that sense that these two very different people both have very pragmatic ideas about why humans settle down together and whether, you know, romance and romantic love is even real. And that ties in quite interestingly with the backstory to the steppers own genealogy as well like the reveal that they get when they find out his ancestry because it was about being pragmatic about preserving this line of people by literally Mm. just sort of trying to match people up to make more of the separates yeah and the fact that when joshua found out about that basically that he'd been the result of like deliberate breeding program (laughs) which i'm sure we'll get to but then met his father and spoke with him about it and found out that I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that that was a great romance or anything. There was a lot of like predatory, creepy stuff going on there. But the way his father saw it was this wasn't part of the breeding program. I developed a crush on her and I didn't take the money. And, you know, that's still not okay. But the point I'm making there is that in a weird way, it still felt like despite being part of the whole breeding program, they were pushing for this idea that it was romance that drove that relationship that caused Joshua to be born. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, or some human emotion yeah. of some sort, if not actual romance. An illusion of romance, as Stan would say. <laughs> we'll get to that because that's the whole thing. But let's skip through Josh's 100,000 steps. Josh, I just called him Josh. Call like him Josh, that's mate. fine. Joshua's 100,000 steps. I've just been playing Skyrim, so every time I say 100,000 steps, I'm thinking of going up to the mountain where you meet the greybeards and become the dragonborn. Sorry, that's a, for video game players in the audience. I mean, that sounds like a more interesting story than some of the stuff happening. <laughs> he flies part of the way with Rod, has a very uncomfortable conversation because let's not forget, Dan has chosen to go by his middle name, Rod, which is the name of his uncle, who is the phobic brother who couldn't step, who couldn't go with the Green family to reboot He was left behind by himself, and so he was recruited by the anti-stepping kind of terrorist group and blew up Madison with a nuclear bomb. Josh tries to make the point to his son that this is very disturbing for his mother. You know, Helen does not like being reminded of her brother who was abandoned and then became a terrorist, but this is part of his rebellion is kind of how it's painted, and which I thought was, you know, yes, I get where he's coming from, but also kind of mean and rude deliberately to his mum. It felt to me a little bit like if you were Hitler's estranged nephew and you grew up and said, I'm going to start calling myself Adolf because I think that guy was misunderstood. (laughs) I would be softer than that because I think Rod is a more sympathetic character than Adolf Hitler. Yeah, and like I'm not saying that Rod is Hitler. Like that was just the analogy that came to my mind because what I mean is that. Like an infamous terrorist. Yeah, to have a terrorist in your family and be yeah. like, no, I'm going to like own and embrace that connection. It sort of feels like he's glorifying that, which is, uh, I could see where Joshua is coming from and saying that's going to make your family uncomfortable because that's a really traumatic part of their history that you don't really have firsthand memory of, but that is still very traumatic for them. And I think the only person who really had responsibility who has something to answer to that is the grandfather because he mm. was the one with the autonomy who got the family to move. Like it's, Helen didn't have a part to play in her brother being left behind. She could have said, oh, I'll stay behind, but she was literally a child as well. So she didn't have a choice mm. in doing that. And she's the one who's going to have the most direct hurt from her son making this choice. 
the only person who doing air quotes deserves to be hurt by this name is the grandfather. And it sounds like it doesn't mm. bother him that much. So it's a, it's a weird choice to make. Yeah. And there's that weird thing too, where from memory in the first book, it's actually Helen's mother, who's the big driving force for them to go out into the long earth. Her dad decides to go along with it and then becomes quite passionate about it because their mother dies not long after. And Rod doesn't even find out until quite a long time later, which is one of the many ways in which he is horribly, horribly abandoned by his family. Yeah. So he is a very sympathetic character, but yes, he also did kill at least thousands of people and destroyed a whole town. So it's complicated. That's an awkward conversation they have to which Rod's eventual answer is kind of just shut up and let me fly the plane. (laughs) And he gets part of the way with Rod, then he gets out of the plane. He walks quite a bit of the way with Sally, who hasn't seen for a while. Sally Lindsay, daughter of Willis, who invented the stepper box, a very talented natural stepper from a family of natural steppers, which will become important very soon. But which didn't include Willis. Yeah, and Willis was not one of those. He was a non-stepper who married into the family. She's got real Tom from Succession vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she, she's she been doing vigilante stuff out in the Long Earth. Another link to Pratchett's early book, Strata, where she rents herself out essentially as a helper to new settler groups for like a year or so, helps them get settled in and then leaves. So just like you were saying before, you know, she really limits her level of intimacy and connection to other people. She's got a job where she's like, I will live with this community, but only for six months to a year. And then I'm out. I'm done. So she's always got a, you know, it's like expiry dating for a whole community. (laughs) But she's got a lot of empathy and human connection to burn. Like later on, Joshua finds her and where she's living and why she's living there. It shows that she does feel deeply for other people and will go to extremes for them but and that's perhaps why she has to not stay for too long as well Mm. so it's kind of like she accrues a bunch of caring and then just like burns it off in a huge like (laughs) thing of fury she her love language is violently killing bad people (laughs) (laughs) that's that's her thing it's interesting because she's much more like the original protagonist of the short story from the high megas that spawned the whole long earth thing more than Joshua does, even though Joshua is kind of more of the protagonist. Can I just at this point, because we, we've mentioned Terry Pratchett a few times in the High Megas, this did not feel like a Terry Pratchett book to me at any point. Like the other ones, it felt like the collaboration was slowly going more one way than the other. But this book, if you gave it to mm. me without any context, without any authors and said, who do you think wrote this? Terry Pratchett is not a name that would have come up for me. I agree. It did not feel like him at all. Not just because of the lack of humor, which is a thing that struck me increasingly in the last few books, but also just the writing style, the focus on the science and the world building, the plot. Like just none of that felt like classic Pratchett to me. His voice wasn't there. No. Like his plots are there. Like it felt like he was involved in getting all of this out. But Mm. in terms of writing each sentence, it just didn't feel like a Terry Pratchett book. I know exactly where you're both coming from, and I felt a certain amount of that, but I think there were so many little things that were clearly old ideas of Pratchett mm-hmm. that I'm familiar with, particularly from some of his early books and work, and that are themes that he's returned to in various different ways. I kept being reminded. Mm-hmm. And I agree the prose did not feel very Pratchetty, but I agree also the plot felt quite Pratchetty in some ways. And yeah, just a lot of the ideas in it. And there are little touches like, you know, Lob saying and, and Joshua quoting things that I'm like, that sounds like something Pratchett But that's would from do. an earlier book. It's like a callback to a book that felt more like him. So Yeah. 
And this is an interesting thing because we know that Pratchett worked on the draft. He was as involved at that early stage of the book as he was on all five of them. And then he sort of turned them over to Stephen Baxter. But the last couple, he didn't do any rewrites or any edits or any further drafting because he wanted to finish other things because he knew his time was running out. I think that does show, I mean, he would have finished working on this book in, I think, 2013, so a year or two before he died, and it didn't get published until after he died the same year, 2015. It does show that a lot of later drafting and rewriting would have been done by Baxter by himself and presumably with an editor. But I will say also, it just does not feel as polished if we're talking about the writing. There was a lot of bits of this book where I'm like, I would have had another go at this whole paragraph or this whole chapter. And I- It's been a while since I've read a book where I've felt that. And maybe it's because there's something of the unique voice that the other books had seemed to be missing a little. Like it still felt like the other books in the series, but it just felt a little bit off to me. And I I really hesitate. I didn't know if I wanted to talk about that because, you know, a lot of people are very critical of the last books that Pratchett worked on. And I have so far, when I've read them, not seen that really to the same extent. But with this one, I just... I did. I felt like this just feels like it needed another pass. It needed another edit. I'll be interested to see how The Long Cosmos fits into that as well. Um, Because I remember you mentioning, I think it was in the Long Mars episode, that there was one extended sequence in that that Pratchett did become quite heavily involved in. Like that was the part of the book that he really stepped in and took over for a while. And I don't know what that sequence is. And I'll be curious to see if I can pick it when I read it or if, because I want, I'm curious if it actually shows up that that was a bit where he stepped in and was actively involved. Yeah, I'll be interested to see that too. Yeah, I spent all of this book, like other than taking in the myriad characters and events happening, just to be like, is there a sentence in here or a joke or a scenario that feels Pratchetty? And I don't feel like I found it. Mm. A lot of the new ideas that are introduced in this book didn't feel to me as innovative and interesting as the stuff that's in the earlier books. You know, I love in the Long Mars that they visit all these amazing Earths and that every single one is bonkers and there's like a planet of giant tortoises and there's one with big kangaroos that have got mohawks and they're eaten by dinosaurs. and Acid snakes and random crab societies and dogs. Yeah. dragons on Mars and oh, just every, like every weird new world. A side note. So um, cool. There was a world in the Long Mars that I was really hoping would come back in this one and it better come back in the Long Cosmos. It's the one where Earth evolved as a moon of another planet. Um, yes, that was my this, favorite too. Yeah, but and they lo- they lost a bunch of explorers there as well. Like Maggie left some people yeah. there, and they were just gone when they came back through. I want to know what the hell happened to those people. I want to know what the life was on that planet that Earth was a moon of. I want to know more about the science of Earth being a moon. That is a fascinating concept to me. And there was just nothing about this, yeah. so I'm like, Cosmos had better have something about that. <laughs> Fingers crossed from the name that that's going to be a big part of it. But Look, I was very optimistic at the end of The Long Mars that some of those threads would get picked up. I've lost all that optimism now. I'm going to be 100% (laughs) honest with you. I just do not think it's going to happen. This book picks up ideas from previous books, but in a very oblique sideways fashion. Like if we finish Joshua's 50th birthday jaunt, he goes a lot of the way with Sally after going some of the way with his son in the plane. And then he meets up with Nelson Azakiwe, who is one of the other main protagonists, although he's very much sort of a side character in this book in a way. I always just think of him on his weird sex barge, like every time, <laughs> like every time his name was brought up. 
which they do bring up briefly. He totally has a love child who's going to come back into it. Like, they are constantly referencing the fact that, oh, maybe something came out of that little liaison. And it's like, there's no mystery here. Like, clearly that's going to come back at some point as a plot point. But stop referencing it and then not bringing it into this specific book. Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah, that was very... But, yeah, he he meets up with Nelson to go the last of the way back to Datum Earth. And that's where he has the conversation with him. Nelson's like... You know, Lobsang didn't know everything about you. Like, he never figured out anything about who your dad was. Is that something you want to know? Like, I could look into that for you. And Joshua, there's a line where he says he forces himself not to hesitate and says, yes. Nelson's like, right, I'm on the case. Because as we know of Nelson, he loves puzzles and working things out. I love him. He's such a weird, great character. But in this book, all he is is a cipher for this story of Joshua's family. And yet, sex barge. <laughs> yes. And then there's... His journey to the sex barge. Yeah. He almost didn't need to be in this book, like, as in I'm glad he was, but like they could have equally had Joshua stumbles across a diary and revealed all the same stuff. Mm. Like, mm. I'm glad he was in it, but it didn't feel like he needed to be in it. There's so many other ways it could have happened. As we're about to discover, there's a whole sort of secret organization whose job is to follow the descendants of these steppers. And Joshua is A, super famous, and B, still has the surname of one of the main families involved in that organization. Stella knew who he was. Apparently, he's been following his career and just never reached out to him. Why did Lobsang not know about any of this? It's not like it was that secret. Yeah, it's weird. And why are they not trying to stud him Mm. out? Mm. Like that's their whole thing. Yeah. I wonder well, if they've approached Rod at all. Oh, yeah. Mm. They probably will. Let's hope they don't, though. Maybe they don't exist anymore since the fall of Datum Earth and the that's Yellowstone true. eruption or something. I don't know. We'll probably never find out. But they would have surely had a contingency. Their whole thing is that they're steppers. Like, Oh, that's true. They would have thought of that. So Nelson does look into it. We learn through Nelson's research about the secret history, and I, I put little titles for these things. This is the secret history of the Valiente family. I would read a whole spin-off series about this, by the way. Like, this is my favorite section of the whole book, like, until we get to the weird breeding program. But the adventures of these guys, like, meddling in history, like, it's that's absolutely mm. my thing, that I would read the hell out of a separate series. It's very League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, isn't it? Yeah, and I actually did like that subplot, Liz, I agree. But I also felt like it was different from – you didn't really feel like it was from this book, like tonally and historically. It just Mm. it didn't feel like it belonged in this novel. (laughs) Yeah. I weirdly did not like it. And I say weirdly because this is normally totally my jam. Like it's Victorian superheroes essentially is what it comes down to because in a nutshell, this whole plot line is that back in the mid-19th century – there was an aristocrat who was a stepper, though he didn't call it that. And I did love all of the weird sort of era appropriate names that they come up with for it. Like he calls them waltzes. <laughs> and yeah, they go Wittishins or Deceal. Again, reusing Pratchett words, which is a very Pratchett thing to do. It's not just let's use Pratchett words so this feels like a Pratchett novel. It's exactly what Pratchett did in all his own books is he just reused his own ideas all the time. He's a self-plagiarizer. <laughs> but yeah, he realizes he's not the only one who can do this and starts looking out for other men, it should be said, he only recruits men from England to form a society of people with disability who could work for the crown to the betterment of the British Empire. X-Men first class. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, basically, right? And the first one that we know about that he tracks down is Louis Valiente, who is obviously Joshua's ancestor, who grew up in a poor family after his father was like wiped out in some speculation just before the rail boom or something. They, they do explain the wrong railways, I think it was. Mm, that's right. And so his family lost all their money. He was destitute. His dad was treating him really horribly. 
I think his mother might have died. And so he ran away from home and realized he could step and used it to become a great stage magician. I'm like, oh, look at this. <laughs> this I'm into this. I've said that before. Like, if you could actually do magic, but you didn't want to get dissected, that you could be a very good performer. But <laughs> yes. I just want to quickly say, I thought that where this was going, because he is literally called like Louis Valiente, I was like, that's too obvious. At some point, one of these dudes is going to kill him and take his identity, and that's going to be actually the ancestor. That would have been oh, wow. interesting. Because I thought it was going to be like the, the geologist guy who gets darker and darker, and I was like, oh, he's going to take the Valiente name, and he's going to be the actual ancestor, and that's going to be an interesting thing for Joshua to find out that he's actually got this cutthroat guy in his history. But no, it was just the, the nice guy that we had all along. Well, that guy is his other ancestor. Yeah, they, they do all sort so of that makes sense. come in together. Ooh, bad phrasing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, but I didn't like it. And I think it's because it didn't do anything that surprised me. I was like, if I was going to say, Ooh, what would you write if you were going to write a mid-19th century adventure set in the world of the long earth? This is my first prediction. It was not surprising or interesting or weird. And the adventures that they have kind of fit into, it was one of those things where we're not going to change history before the point where we've changed history. Like Step Day is the big divergent point for the Long Earth universe where everyone realizes the Long Earth exists and human society starts changing, even though there were steppers before that and people accidentally falling into happy landings and all of that stuff. This is where it really kicks off. And so as far as I know, all the things that they get involved with are things that happened anyway. Like they disrupt an uprising of the Chartists in April 1848. Yes, but why did they happen anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's it's one of those things where we're going to explain things in our own history using weird supernatural stuff, but we're not going to change the history, though. They could have used Prince Albert a little bit better, though. I reckon they could have, you know how, like, in Doctor Who, Queen Victoria's a werewolf. They could have, yeah. he's a stepper or something. There's something in there. They've got so many kids, like, do something with that. But no, he's just around and he's kind of like, oh, a new toy to play with. Yeah, well, his, his role is kind of like he likes their plan and says, yes, you can help me with my dream of uniting Europe and making it a better place. I don't know if that's an accurate depiction of Prince Albert because I don't know much about him, but he and his assistant, Mr. Radcliffe, are like, yes, we will take you on. And they call themselves the Knights of Discorporea, which could not be a more superhero name if they tried. <laughs> and they get involved in the Underground Railroad, helping slaves in America and decide to make themselves rich using a scheme that doesn't work once the Long Earth is widely known which is to go to a side earth where we know that there's gold and dig for gold there. So they become fabulously wealthy and keep doing all these missions for the British Empire. So I'm doing a short version of this because we want to get onto the other plots. But basically, after a few years of doing this, actually, it's more like 20 years that they've been doing it, Prince Albert dies and Mr. Radcliffe, his offsider, takes that as an opportunity to summon them to the palace for a meeting and then says... Right. You're actually all abominations. I hate you. Now that Prince Albert is gone, I can enact my plan, which is to kill all of you. Yeah, they signposted that so hard as well. <laughs> like, I know. He basically was wearing a cape and like the twirly moustache and like all he needed was some <laughs> railway tracks. Yeah. <laughs> well, even the name Mr. Radcliffe, like there's a Doctor Who story called, there's a couple of possible Doctor Who references actually. Yeah, everyone this, get your drinks ready. Which must come from Stephen Baxter because Pratchett was not a big Doctor Who fan. But Mr. Radcliffe is a character in Ben Aronovich's Doctor Who story, Remembrance of the Daleks, and he's a secret racist, <laughs> like running an organization that's called The Association. And it turns out it's a bunch of people who want what's best for Britain and what's best for Britain is keeping all of the filthy foreigners out. 
which is why he's allying himself with some of the Daleks in the story. And then this guy's called Mr. Radcliffe, and I'm like, oh, well, he's going to turn out to be horribly racist later on. And he did. So <laughs> There's also some quite classic stereotyping as well, because, like, oh, he slips into the street slang as well. So clearly he comes, like... Oh, yeah. But, yeah, he was... Um, I agree with you. There was a very predictable plot of this, but I still loved it because it was something familiar and fun to retreat to in the chaos of the rest of the book. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what yeah. and I kind of enjoy watching things unfold as you expect them to. So, like, the first time they make them go down to a basement, I'm like, that's not great. Like, why would you make the people who the one place they're not safe is a basement go into a basement? And then the next time I'm like, yeah, of course, they're going to try some nonsense. I did like that payoff where Radcliffe attempted to destroy them, basically, by taking them down to the cellar. And- and Burden, Frank, Frank yeah, Burden? Burden, yeah, he's like five steps ahead and already has a plan. And I mean, it was a little unbelievable that he would have gone to all the effort of like going to this other world, finding the exact location of the cellar in that other world and digging out a tunnel. Like it was oh. a little. He's a paranoid rock guy. I don't know. I bought that. He was paranoid and he had a decade or <laughs> true. so to and do And a history it. in rocks and mining. True. That is true. Yeah, that's true. He was a geologist. Like well, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy it. <laughs> I, I love yeah. that. That was cool. But then he gets to do all the cool stuff and then we never hear of him again. Well, I you know? thought he was going to be the real Valiente. Like I thought he was going to be like, and now I yeah. backstab all of you and tis I who is the true ancestor. But then there's other. See, things. I would have liked that because I wouldn't have expected that. But I, it, it, it never even occurred to me. So I was just like, oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> No, it's just, oh, it's just make all our grandkids be each other's, you know, grandkids-in-law. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's where it ends up, right? Is that after Radcliffe tries to kill them and Burden enacts his backup plan, which is to have dug out a hole under the earth in the next world along from where they've been taken underground, where Radcliffe assumes they can't escape. He escapes, he steps back and kills Radcliffe, and then they go on the run and they go under assumed names. Except for Valiant. <laughs> yeah, except Valiant. Well, no, they do. They use, well, she marries off yes, his Yes, it's daughter. not clear what assumed um, names. And it's like, that's fine. She's got a different last name because she married. I'm like, eh, they can still figure that out. I'm pretty sure. Like, There are a few things that do defy explanation in this book. We'll come back to a couple other ones, I think. But yeah. Uh, Hackett, the uh, the lord who sort of formed the knights in the first place, invites them back together after another 20 years and says, we've got to think about the future. And I'm like, okay, great. How are you going to think about the future? And he'd mentioned Charles Darwin a bit earlier on, which I should have seen as a very bad sign. But then he's back again and he's got a copy of Origin of Species. He's like, see, this this is what we need to think about. And immediately burdens onto it. And he's like, oh, so you want to breed our children like horses? <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 no. We'll just offer them some money to meet and get married. And then we'll offer them some more money if they have children. And it's up to them if they want to take it or not, which is a very upper class attitude to, you could just decide if you take money or not. That's fine. But is it any different to like how I've been watching Queen Charlotte recently? So I've been thinking a lot about Bridgerton. Is that much different from the aristocracy trying to maintain aristocracy? It's just like, let's put all our children in the one spot. No. Yeah. Like that's something Hackett says and it's part of why like I still found the breeding program thing creepy, but I didn't find it quite as creepy as yeah. I could have because he did make a point when he's like, How is this any different from arranged marriages and like political marriages that are basically mm. business arrangements? I was like, I mean, you have a point. Like it's still creepy, but it's kind of creepy in the way that a lot of these things are in a broader context. Um, and they're not technically forcing anyone into anything. Although you are also right in saying that there's a difference between uh physically forcing someone into a situation and 
through the systemic uh, situation that they are in, kind of not giving them a lot of a choice. Like it's easy to say, oh, they can just refuse the money. But depending on their circumstances, it may not be that simple. And when you look at Joshua's parents, it actually turned out that his mum had run away from home because she'd been unhappy at home and there was now pressure to marry. So you kind of get the impression that even if she had not consented, if she'd stayed at home, her parents might have forced her into it. So it's still iffy in that sense, I think. And Joshua's father also says that now he possibly would have turned it down, but at the time the money seemed very, very tempting, even though ultimately he only took the first payment and not any of the later ones. The money was Mm. a big driving force for him. Mm. Mm. That pressure that Joshua's mother was under, was that from the fund? Was that her parents getting the letter saying- She got a letter, I'm pretty sure. daughter to meet Mm. this other guy and she ran away. And And then when he found her, I don't think he would have said- yeah, and I um I got this letter. So oh yeah, so, so did she I know feel like that makes it really not okay mm. on a whole other level, apart from the fact that she's fourteen and he's eighteen. He was seventeen. Uh, seventeen at the time. Yeah, that's that, right. And I'm like, that's, that was great, but just mm. slightly. Yeah, it's not great. I think it's meant to have happened in like it was around the year two thousand and one from yep. memory, because I think Josh was mm. fourteen on step day. So they said it's not that long ago in the past that we would say, oh, yeah, it happened all the time. I mean, it does happen all the time, but it's still weird. Like, it's just because something happens in real life doesn't mean you have to choose to make it happen in your book. And I hadn't remembered that Joshua's mother was that young. Like, 14 is, like, particularly when we're talking 21st century, that's really young to be getting pregnant and having a child. Like, that's full on. To me, though, like, it felt like they'd chosen 14 on purpose, and I don't know if this is my long bow coming in, but this book felt exceptionally Jesus-y and oh, religious. God, yeah, that's something I, I wanted to talk about when we get to talking about Stan. Mm. That there was some yep. very heavy-handed Christ imagery going on around Stan and Rocky. And th- when I say jesus like I don't feel like it was a cohesive, we're going to focus in on one guy. There was a lot of, like, Christ figures in here mm. as well, and I think they figured out mm. that they, like, scientists or historians, or I'm not sure who it was, Mary is estimated to have been around 14 years old when she had, Jesus. So I thought that that was a specific choice for her to have been 14. But I don't know right. if that's me making a long bow or because like it's not Joshua Valiente who's the Christ figure in this book. That is Stan, as Dion points out. So, but it did feel like there was a lot of that sort of scattered throughout the plot. So I mm. feel like. Is his mother's name Maria as well? Am I remembering yeah. that correctly? No, like Martha, yeah, like that. Ma- Martha yeah. or something. It yeah, starts with like M. That. No, Maria. It is Maria. Yeah, Joshua's mom is Maria, Stan's mom is Martha. So oh, Stan's mother is Martha, yeah. Two M women who birth a significant male figure who changes the mm. landscape. So I thought 14 was deliberate in this case, not just like a weird choice because like otherwise she could have easily been 17 as as well as the guy. Because like why have that mm. power? They could have made him younger. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. how. It just the whole thing is a bit not quite right. Yeah. I don't know. So I think I already was a bit like, eh, this is kind of fun, but also I feel like I'm missing out on all the most fun parts. Like the, weirdly, the best part of this for me was when they were in America doing the Underground Railroad stuff, which I thought was kind of a cool sidebar, but it still felt a little bit weird, particularly because this is, you know, it's two British guys writing about America. They've chosen not to write about the UK. Like the whole thing is about America. Mm. 
But then when they do bring the UK into it through the Knights of Discorporia, it's like, oh, yeah, and the British steppers were superheroes and they helped free slaves in America. And you're like, really? Yeah. There's like one acknowledgement in there of, um, oh, yeah, like our country was partly responsible for slavery in the first place, but it's okay because now we're abolitionists. It's like, oh, it's a little more complicated than that. I liked the idea of them using their powers to help these kinds of revolutionary groups. I thought that was an interesting way of bringing stepping into history. And I definitely feel like the message of that scene was meant to be anti-slavery, pro-abolition. I did find the representation of the slaves quite uncomfortable. I'm not really the person to comment on representation of black slaves in America, like with any sort of authority, but I did just feel like there were a couple of bits in there where they were sort of, it felt like, as you said, these two white male British writers writing about an area of history that they probably didn't have a lot of experience or knowledge of necessarily. And it felt like sometimes I fell back on a few stereotypes of the way the characters spoke. And um, the backstory of, I think his name was Simon. Yeah. His backstory and how he had been raised with the master's son. And there were some lines he had where he's like, I didn't even realize I was a slave. Like, I was too young to understand what that meant. I was like, oh, I feel like mm. he would still have a pretty traumatic childhood as a slave, even if you didn't understand the broader context of the world, you would still know that there was a difference between you and the people who were treating you like property. And he even does have a certain awareness there because he makes a comment about how he was educated next to the master son and he made sure never to outshine him because mm. he he was aware enough of the social context there to know that that could put him in danger. So it was this weird thing about how he was sort of adopted into the family while also still being a slave and how he wasn't bothered when his own family was sold yeah. off because like that seemed really weird to me. It was like, no matter how young you are, you would be really upset if your mother and your siblings were sold off. Mm. And just there were just some like clumsy moments in that where I think the intention was good, but I think that the way they wrote it was a little bit clunky, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, you know, there's a little bit white savior yeah. complex as well. Like they acknowledge that it's difficult for the slaves to make the journey to freedom, but they're being helped by these lovely Englishmen who have superpowers. Why they don't just walk them all the way? Yeah, and Hackett was a bit patronizing about it as well. He was like, he was really enjoying his white savior moment where he's like, you know, clasping their hand, like, yeah. you've been through so much. I'm so happy we can help you. They are intervening on behalf of people who need help, but at the same time, they're doing it for the British government. Like They're not doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. They're doing it because it's destabilizing America, or at least it's helping the Union in their war with the Confederacy, or it will. And, you know, it's it's colonialism still. <laughs> it's just the next stage of it. And it felt like that scene was good. And if it was in isolation and if they were working on their own as like a team just trying to do good, I think you could go, yeah, great. But because they're working for the British government. Isn't that kind of like potentially the point though, that they could have been off doing superhero yeah. stuff on their own. They had autonomy, they had knowledge, but they decided to go do this stuff for the British Empire, which was all about colonial, it still is. But yeah, I feel like mm. that might not be an accident. That could be a deliberate comment of how it would have been used by certain people in that time. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that is Hackett's whole thing, isn't it? Like he he wants to do it for the crown and the glory of England. And it's Prince Albert who says, this will help my dream of uniting Europe. Although we never actually see them in action in Europe, apart from brief mentions of some stuff they do in Berlin just before Radcliffe tries to kill them all because they're worried about the potential for World War One to break out. 
about 15 years too early, but you know, that's okay. They can be really he's more like 25 years too <laughs> yeah, early. Yeah, he's like 3D thinking, but yeah, mm. I, I do think that potentially them doing these things that aren't super individually honorable and more colonial could be a deliberate choice, like, and possibly, yeah, like it's accurate to the era. I, I certainly don't think it's an accident in the book. I just think as like the one bit of English protagonism we get from two English authors, it just felt a bit weird. It did. But maybe that was the point, as you say. At no point did I go, this is a group of heroes that I'm really like rooting for. I was kind of like, this yeah. is an interesting use of their power in a different time context. Because like if I had that power, mm. I wouldn't use it like that. But not, everyone would use it in different ways. The idea that they'd band together and do this weird little project it was odd to me as well, but it also did feel potentially accurate because there would be other steppers out doing their yeah. own thing, fixing little stuff, getting rich. Yeah. And I mean, they mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons that they do it is that they assume there are other people in other parts of the world who can do this as well. And if we band together and do it on behalf of the crown, then that means we won't be susceptible to their influence. We'll be ahead of it. So, yeah. But it all kind of, you know, after all that history, the thing that Nelson takes Joshua to see is in a secret archive of the Royal Society, who turns out are working with Mr. Radcliffe in the past, like they're vivisecting steppers to see how this works and how they can kill them. We're doing witch trial stuff as well, basically. Yeah, witch trial stuff where they like drown them and it's like, well, if they disappear, then we know that we found one. And if they don't, then that's They're fine. a criminal anyway or whatever, so it doesn't matter. Like there's real horror stuff. Yeah, but then, the, you know, they find this sort of account of his own life written by Louis Valiente that includes the sort of formation of this fund that tries to get the various families they've identified of steppers to uh, meet up and have children to strengthen the blood, as Hackett calls it. Oh, that was kind of gross part of it. But at least, you know, they're not forcing anybody, as you say. Like, they try to make it a gentler version. But it still feels weird and gross. And it turns out that Joshua's father is a descendant of Burden, named Freddie Burden, his mother, obviously, is descendant of Louis Valiente. And also Sally's family is part of the same thing. Like her family's descended from one of those families Hackett? as well. It was like the fancy boy one. Yeah, I think they were Hackett's on her mother's side. Which, I mean, it makes sense those surnames would still be around. Like it's only 150 years or so. Like it's only so many generations since then. But yeah, that's sort of Joshua's backstory. And I was like- Joshua's tree. We're four books in. I don't really know if I need any of this. And I think that was the other part of this that sort of made me go- did I really care? And I think for me, the answer was no. And knowing that this is probably all we'll ever get of that backstory, like I can't imagine it coming back in a future book. I was a bit sort of nonplussed and I was a bit surprised. Normally this would be such my kind of thing, this sort of Victorian superhero nonsense. Well, you both mentioned that this feels like a less adventurous book. They go to less worlds. And, mm. and I noticed that too. And I, I do enjoy like the weird worlds of it all, but it did feel like in this series of is it five books, I'm losing track because they, they all sort of bleed into one for me. Yeah. It feels like 40 years on from this big day, the excitement is wearing off. There isn't that much spirit of adventure anymore. People are settling, finding new lives. And the fact that the book reflects this kind of made sense to me that everyone's like not sort of going, oh, what's new? What are we going to see? We're going to discover that one. We're going to keep walking this way. People are settling in like the second generation is here. So it is a quieter, let's sort of settle. Let's reflect let's look back let's look forward let's not move around so much that feels like where the society is at and that's why to mm. me i feel like the book is like that too mm. no that's fair that's something that i've struggled with a bit with this series we often get viewpoint characters who have lost that sense of wonder and it's kind of hard to 
feel that as a reader if we're seeing these amazing worlds through the eyes of people who are basically like, oh, cool, I was right about the space elevator. Anyway, time's a ticking, time to step home. Like, um, it's just like, where is your sense of awe and accomplishment? Like, I, I mean, I get that you are used to this, but that's one of the reasons that I really uh, liked Frank in The Long Mars. He's one of the first characters who's actually still like, holy shit, space exploration, holy shit, other universes. Like he's bouncing around on Mars, planting his flags and being like, I'm the first guy up here until the Russians come along and ruin it for him. But like he actually had that sense of wonder that characters like Sally and even Joshua are lacking because they are quite um, inured to this by now. And I understand why they would be. I don't know if everyone would be. Like, I mean, international travel is something that, you know, a hundred years ago was not as accessible as it is now. And I still get excited if I go to somewhere on the other side of the world that I've never been before. I think you can still retain a sense of wonder about things that are new and unfamiliar to you, depending on your personality. But I also get the message that people like Sally, who's been traveling across the multiverse essentially for her whole life is going to be pretty disillusioned by now and even she says she had that sense of wonder as a child when it was like narnia to her and then it got ruined when it became everyone else's secret world as well but yeah i found that sense of wonder lacking quite a lot through the series and so it's really interesting what you say there liz about how there are these different points in kind of the evolution of these societies where they would be settling in versus exploring. And we're sort of seeing that with the flashbacks to the pre-stepper days. Mm. Yeah. The problem I had with that is that's what I came to these books for. Like it promises this big premise. Mm. What if there are an infinite number of Earths, but it's distinct from every other parallel universe story because it is about What if there were infinite Earths, but there's no people on any of them? It's not about alternate human histories. It's about what do humans do with an infinite number of natural worlds? Mm. What does that do to our society? And that's a huge and interesting concept. That's where the variation is. And if you go far enough, the worlds start to get very different. And it's an alternate evolution of life on Earth rather than an alternate history of the last 2,000 years of humans. And I love that idea. And that's what fascinated me about it. And this book kind of goes... No, we're not interested in that. What if an annoying guy came from a long line of annoying guys? <laughs> yeah. And what if... And they bred more annoying guys. <laughs> what if there's some humans who evolve super brains and then they just leave and they have an annoying and not particularly interesting alternate society, which is what we're going to talk about next, I think. But I yep. just, I felt like the things that I was so here for, the things that kept me going through the long Mars when I found that book a little bit disappointing, but still had such a good time because mm-hmm. I loved the travelogue. I loved Maggie and her crew. I loved all the weird worlds that they visited and the strange problems that they had to deal with. And the way the next are a problem in that book was very interesting. Whereas here, they're not really a problem. They're just Jerks. some super powered people we can call on. Like, again, they're like the X-Men. It's like, well, we're in trouble. We need the super smart kids. Sorry, we're busy not appreciating art right now. So we can't come. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Sorry. and I, I just, I feel I'm, I'm being real negative about this book. And I think I was the one who went to bat a bit for the long Mars because I did have a really good time reading it, despite some of the shortcomings I felt it had. Whereas this one, I just, Oh, I, I didn't not have a good time during parts of it, but it just really wasn't what I was expecting or wanted out of a long earth novel. And maybe that's unfair of me, but after three books, I feel like I should know what to expect. And what I didn't expect was this, but we'll come back to that. I think when we get to the third big storyline, let's do the next storyline. The next storyline or the next storyline? The next storyline of the next. 
with capital N. Yeah. But just quickly saying, I, I did enjoy this book, just putting that in there here. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I did enjoy it, but not nearly as much as the first three. It's my least favorite of them. I'm hoping the fifth one is better. I'm going to find I'm out there's moon back. people, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's get to the next plot line, which I have called Home on the Grange, no. uh, which turned out to be a terrible name for it because we spend so little time on the Grange. But this is Stanberg's story. Now, we haven't heard of or met Stanberg before this book. This book for really heavy reuse of stuff from previous books. Like early on, we're reminded of the story of the cue ball joker, which is the earth that's weirdly smooth and there's nothing on it. Like my brain halfway through this book when they keep introducing <laughs> new characters. <laughs> Yeah, we get that story retold in the first chapter, which was a story that Bill Chambers, a friend of um, Joshua's, told him about some some coma, like a stepper roaming through the long earth, comes to the cue ball. He's dared to spend the night there naked, so he does, and he sleeps there, and then he gets a bit freaked out and he's a bit drunk, and he tries to step away, but he accidentally doesn't step east or west. He goes in another direction and finds himself outside Earth's galaxy looking at it from the inside, and that's the rumor story, right? That's the whole thing. I haven't looked at it, but it feels like it's almost exactly the same prose as in the previous book. I think they might. I haven't looked either, but I'm pretty sure they like copy and pasted that scene. Like the Southern Vampire Chronicles. It felt like it because it was even dialogue with Bill Chambers, who otherwise does not appear in this book, you know. It was just Joshua remembering a conversation he'd had in a previous book. Anyway, the only reason it's there is to set up something later in the book. But there's a lot of that reminding us of old stuff. And then there's also, we're just going to invent a new character for this book who we expect you to like and grow to like because he's going to be incredibly important. And I'm like, but will I? They say that he's going to die very early on, though. Like they say, like the very short mm-hmm. life of Sansa. So, like, you know, he is doomed That's from the true. beginning, which I, I quite mm-hmm. like that as a technique because you're like, oh, when's it going to happen? Why is it going to happen? Like, I, I agree. A foreshadowing is there right from the start. And as the ending was approaching, it did mean that I kind of saw what was coming with the sacrifice, but it also meant that I was, wait, is it going to happen in this book? Is it going to happen in the next book? Yeah. And the Christ figure things all along there as well, mm. which I think we just weave into this conversation. Mm. Yeah, because he's born on Earthwest 4 in 2040, which is the year of the Yellowstone eruption. So he's growing up in one of the low Earths near the original one. In year zero, perhaps. <laughs> no. So like AY is where we're in now after Yellowstone, or is it AS after Stan? We stand a very shallow metaphor. Yeah, great. Stan is born on Earthwest 4 in 2040. He grows up with all these refugees coming from the original Earth because they're fleeing the Yellowstone eruption. And then when he's 16 in 2056, so a little bit later, and this book actually spans about seven years of time, the action. So again, this is what we were saying earlier. The previous one, most of the action takes place over one year. In this book, the action is spread out over about seven years between 2052 and 2059. So and this is 2056. He's 16 now. He's getting himself in a lot of trouble because he's too good at cards. And he's playing with all these workers who are building a space elevator because in the last book, Willis Lindsay got his wish. He found a space elevator on one of the stepwise Marses and then brought back that technology, that material. And now they're replicating it on a lot of the Earths. They're starting to build these space elevators. None of them seem to be functional yet. They're all still under construction. And people are dying on them because they've rushed ahead with this technology and they're building something that goes up into space. And yeah, people die, including the parents of young Ben, who's going to be adopted by Agnes and Lobsang. We'll get to them in a minute. And also, I think Stan's dad did Stan's he's dad trapped die? up there, I think. Cause, oh, he's trapped cause up they there. Haven't, they, the communication's not working. He's on the other side, trapped. 
Right. So he's he's not his dead. His dad is up there, but inaccessible somehow. Yeah. But he gets himself into some trouble with these workers who are like, this kid's too smart. He's taking our money at poker. We're going to beat the shit out of him. And he escapes from that. And then he gets into more trouble defending a kobold who's pretending to be a human. Literally, people are casting stones and things, and he gets in. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's not very subtle. <laughs> but some people help him out, a group who call themselves the Arbiters, who are, who are kind of an unofficial police force, is the way that they're kind of described. And as we find out later, they're totally just a front for the next to scope out and recruit other next who are born on the low earths among humans because they now refer to themselves as something other than human. And that whole rhetoric is kind of gross as we'll get to, but they've identified that Stan is clearly one of them and they want to recruit him. Meanwhile, he's like escaping being beaten up by all these workers by taking his mate Rocky, who's his best friend. I mean, there's that's clearly like a very clumsily, handled queer romance right like it's not just me who's reading this isn't just some guy's best friend like clearly he loves stan i hoped that it was going to be because it was actually one of the first times there was a connection between characters where i I liked their relationship i liked the friendship and i was like this actually Mm. feels like love in a way that some of the actual romantic relationships in this series haven't felt like so i was hoping it would go in that direction but then stan never really does does oh no romance is a human illusion and um, he also, uh, he, he's not as superior about, um, standard or whatever humans, I, I hate the word dim bulb, so I don't want to say it, but he's not yeah. as superior about them as the other next star, but you do get the impression that for next, ro- uh, romantic and sexual relationships with non next are not particularly enjoyable. So I feel like it, I agree with you, Ben, that it could have felt like it could have been a queer romance, but I don't know if they were intentionally writing it that way. It didn't feel like that to me. It felt like they had a really close relationship, but it was a way to me of showing possibly even the other way that the fact that they made them both men was to make it not a romance so that he had someone who was close to him that was of the other kind of people so that you could see why he wasn't going to just drink the Kool-Aid of the next and be like, I'm better than you. So I feel like I would have liked it to be because I agree completely that they had a more believable sort of respect and caring for each other than so many of the other relationships. Like I don't believe Agnes and George for a second. I was like, that seems so like nothing. But yeah, but I don't think we're supposed to believe that. But isn't? But also feel like we kind of are. But anyway, um, I would have loved it to be that, but it didn't feel like that at all for me. But I did Mm. find it interesting that we mostly hear things from Rocky's perspective. Like he's the perspective character for this. And again, sorry to keep Mm. hopping on about this. Like the Bible, like it's just like written about this guy from someone by Jesus. near him <laughs> who goes with him to all these places. He's like his one disciple initially kind of thing. Also fascinatingly, like calling him Rocky considering where they ultimately end up. It's Yeah, but that's what I thought mm. that was. I really loved their relationship. One thing that annoyed me about the Christ allegory that was very heavy-handedly happening was the way Rocky was clearly intended to be the Judas in this situation. Like they were at the end, they were talking yeah. about how he had betrayed Stan and how that was like, you got the sense that in this budding religion, Rocky was going to go down as the Judas figure. And I was like, Rocky didn't do anything. Like literally he just helped 
the people who were betraying Stan and were offering them up as a sacrifice, he just got Stan to talk to them. And Stan was totally consenting and fine. He was like, yep, I see it. I have to make the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I'm on board with it. Like for me, a betrayal would be if Rocky had decided to go behind Stan's back and betray him without Stan's knowledge or consent, uh, like had actually given him up. But he was he was the one fighting the hardest for Stan for most of the book, him and Stan's mother, Martha. It was the next who kind of offered Stan up as this sacrifice, partly for genuinely practical reasons. They were like, he's our best bet. But also it felt a little bit like they just wanted to get rid of a problem. Yeah. Mm. If anyone betrayed Stan, it was them. And the fact that Rocky's going down as this traitor figure, like Stan literally hugs him and says, it's okay, mate. You didn't do anything wrong at the end. But still we're meant to see him as this Judas figure. I just found that weird. I felt for Rocky in that sense. Isn't there controversy around whether Judas was actually a betrayer as well? Mm, mm, true. Like maybe I'm, that was good. I think the other problem with that, and we'll get to the scene in a minute, there was a problem that it wasn't entirely clear what his practical purpose was, mm-hmm. like why they actually needed mm-hmm. him. Like that did not seem at all clear mm-hmm. to me either. They kind of make an excuse and try to explain it, but I wasn't really sure mm-hmm. why they needed him. But anyway, he's been identified, Stan, as one of the next, and Roberta Golding shows up, star of The Long War, one of the other main War. characters who goes on the East 20 million mission and then turns up in uh, the long Mars as one of the next, who's one of the older next. And she turns up in this book and she's like, yeah, we're going to recruit Stan. Stan, come to us to where we live on this place we call the Grange. Also, I don't live there, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah, but the way the Grange was described in the previous book, it sounded like it was this whole range of worlds and it was like so far away and in this weird place that no one could ever find. And in this book, it's just, oh, it's just some specific worlds. (laughs) <laughs> you're like where, where this it's just part of the long earth like where is it it's not clear and i think the implication it. is it's so far away that unless you know how to use the soft places the way the next can you can't get there but they don't really explain that although and we'll, we'll talk about what it's like there in a moment but when stan decides he's had enough and he wants to leave roberta's like but you can't leave we haven't shown you how to get in and out of here yet and he's like oh i can leave and he just does and that's why they know he's the one who can solve the problem at the end. But anyway, yeah, they take him there, but they have this interview. Like Roberta has this interview. She talks to Stan's mum, Martha, and then talks to Stan and is just consistently referring to humans as being something different to her. Rocky's like feeling really uncomfortable. Martha's feeling really uncomfortable. And even Stan, I think this is where I was like, okay, I stand Stan <laughs> because he's the one who's saying... I don't like the way you talk about human beings. He doesn't like it either, even though he's one of them. I'm glad you brought that up because I've got it like in my notes that the reason I liked Stan was because he is the first one of the next who actually calls them out on this superiority complex they have. And it made me yeah. so uncomfortable. In the last book as well, the way the next were portrayed, I was always very uncomfortable in their scenes for a few different reasons. But I just hated mm. this idea that higher intellect meant lack of emotion. And I think that that's one of the fundamental issues I have with the next, but I felt like even more sympathetic next characters like Roberta have this grating, patronizing attitude towards people who aren't next. And they are either like actively hostile towards them or the nicer ones like Roberta are still just very patronizing. It's very us and them. It's constantly talking about them as in this smug way as like, no, we have proof that our brains are different from yours. Therefore, we are better than you. And just to their faces, they're consistently just so rude to people who they see as lesser. And I hate that idea that human evolution 
is a race of people who just look down on anyone who's not as intelligent as them. I'm like, that's meant to be the step forward, really? So I liked that Stan was the first person who actually came from within the next and called them out on that and said, you're talking about other humans, my family, people that you've grown up around, people that you come from, like animals, and you are just the zookeepers. And even if you're nice zookeepers, you're still not giving them any choice about the fences you're putting them in. And it was just really nice to see someone actually, someone whose opinion they respected and might listen to point that out to them because everyone before then who had been uncomfortable with that was one of the people they were being insulting to. And so they didn't think their opinion mattered. So I actually really, I found it really satisfying when Sam was like, no, Roberta, I'm out and just like left the world. Like, fuck you. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about what the next utopia is like. So we've talked a bit about what the regular human long earth utopia is like, but let's talk about the Grange because we only get a chapter or two about it, really. They take Stan and Rocky on this bit of a tour and it's mostly next who live there, but there are a few dim bulbs to use their term. I will say it because I want everyone to hear how dumb it sounds. Yeah, I know. I hate that word. This is an aspect of this book particularly because it's set so far in the future. We're now in, you know, the late 2050s and it still sounds like it was written to sound futuristic in the 1980s. Mm. It just, it just does not, the language does not feel right. Because they were childish, like, you know, their children when they came up with it and it stuck perhaps. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's meant to sound dumb to us, I, but I... It does sound like it's from Back to the Future. They're like, Biff would be shouting that from his car. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, we get a little tour of their society, which basically is like, there's no governments, it's anarchy, basically, but it's highly organized anarchy in the sense that, which sounds like a tautology, but in the sense that because of the way they communicate with each other and their supposed high level of intelligence, they just, as a group, identify problems and decide who's going to deal with it and just do it. And I'm like, really? Was it just me? Or I'm sounding like I really didn't like this book when I did, but their society didn't feel very imaginative or realistic to me in no. terms of this. Cause it really, the brief time we spend there, it felt like an expensive spa where <laughs> everyone has been there for two months. And now they're like, we've, yes. we've transcended and this is how we're, we're going to go off and talk about philosophy while all doing each other in the spas. Like it's, it just, it didn't feel like this is actually like a sustainable society that very intelligent next level beings have come up with after a while. It just felt like, a snooty moment. God, that's so true. It's like if a bunch of upper class people were just eating mushrooms for like two months and were like, yeah, we've evolved into a higher life form, man. Yeah. It's just fell like that. Like, well, look, we don't need clothes. We just need something with pockets to carry around, like the pens to write down our profound ideas. And like it, and a bit where they're like, oh, mm. you don't get into such heated philosophical arguments when you're like grooming each other in, in the waters of the hot springs. And I was kind of like, really? This is their society of like very carefully thought out everything like no i also found that really interesting because i um so the term utopia you guys might know but i'll just say for the listeners comes from um, a book written by thomas moore in the 1500s and it was a pun on the idea of a good place and no place and it was such an influential work that it spawned this idea of utopia which obviously has been taken and adapted kind of into the lexicon and used in a lot of different ways i haven't read it in years but i studied utopia in university and in preparation for this i went back and just read a summary of it because because I was kind of feeling like a sort of, not nostalgia, um, 
like something about it just seemed familiar to me. And I went back and looked at Thomas More's utopia for it. And I was like, yeah, this is basically the utopia that Thomas More described in like a quite literal sense of like people walking around because <laughs> they don't yes. need laws and they don't need religion. But if they do, you can be an atheist, but we don't really like you. And just, I mean, and you should do something if it feels good, yeah. like scratch your nose if it itches. Yeah, like we yeah. have no society, man. And I mean, Moore's representation of it was, I mean, there's a lot of debate around how ironic he was being with some aspects and how much it was actually meant to be a utopia and how much he was problematizing these ideas and so on. But I did feel like it was this kind of very literal version of the communal living of Thomas More's utopia. Like it felt like a reference mm. to that, whether deliberately or not. Yeah, that's a really good point, and which I I studied it in high school. I feel like I should have picked up on that as well, but you're 100% right. For me, the best idea in the next utopian lifestyle is the school, and we spend so little time on it, but I love that idea that we look after the kids, but we don't really teach them things. They work things out on their own, and they haven't learned the limits of what's supposed to be possible, so they come up with all these amazing ideas that we learn from them as they're like sort of going, how does the universe work? Well, I think it works like this. And it's not bound by the constraints of what we would have taught them in a traditional school. I kind of dug that idea. Like, I, I mean, depending on how next brains are supposed to work and their sort of development as children into adults, I don't know if that really flies. We don't spend much time on that idea, but I wish we had spent a bit more time on it because it's such an interesting idea. And it's something that Pratchett touches on, like it's a theme in some of his other works. I'm thinking particularly of The Last Hero, where the Da Vinci figure in that book, Leonard de Quirm, wants to build something crazy. And so he says, I want apprentices who are really good because I don't want them to have learned the limits of what's possible yet. Mm. And it's that same kind of idea. Well, and they have the same thing. I think it's George quotation marks in the other storyline when they're like, how did you start communicating with these Beatle guys? And they're like, oh, it took some time. But there's a line in there about no one told them that they wouldn't be able to, like these children, yeah. so they just did it. Yeah, that so. was an mm, interesting yeah. observation, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. But uh, look, there's not much else that they say. I mean, we've we've kind of touched on some of the other things that the next come up with. They don't think art is very important. They don't like it very much. Uh, they don't think much of emotional involvement with other people. They just sort of get along with each other. Like, as I've probably made clear, I'm not a huge fan of this representation of intelligence not coming with emotion and everything. But one thing I did find interesting was towards the end, there's a bit where Sally is thinking that the curse of next intelligence is that they have no comforting delusions. And I thought that was mm. really interesting because it made me wonder if maybe this lack of emotion and empathy and appreciation for a certain kind of feeling is almost a coping mechanism built into the next brains because their intelligence means that they can't fall back on certain kinds of stories and comforts and even sometimes lies that we tell ourselves to make things easier to bear. If they don't have that capability, then maybe their emotions have been muted in order to make it easier for them to get through life. I don't know if that's a deliberate thing, but I did wonder if maybe that was a sort of implication. That would make sense. Mm. I think it's the only thing that go towards explaining that really because there's the flip side of that is that they're meant to be incredibly charismatic. Like that's a whole thing in The Long Mars where the next who take over the original Neil Armstrong military twain do it by this sort of hyper charisma mm. where they are so good at understanding human body language and pheromones and everything else and, and speech that they can basically convince anyone to do anything, including like trained military officers to let them out of the brig and give them their weapons, you know, like it's, it's intense. 
And that doesn't really come across here, except maybe in the way Stan speaks to other people. And perhaps, and I, and I hope this isn't meant to be part of it, that could be an influence on why Rocky is so devoted to him. Yeah. And this is kind of where I went, like when I was talking about it before, I'm normally all for like having really strong non-romantic friendships in books because I think it's so rarely represented well. And I liked that they had a strong friendship, but it just didn't feel like just a strong friendship the way it was written. But then it also didn't feel like a romance. And after a while, I started to think, well, is Rocky kind of weirdly devoted to Stan because of the influence of his sort of next charisma? I hope not. And I don't think that's in the text, but... I think there's a line towards the end when um, Stan's, like, preaching to all the people at the base of the elevator in one of the final scenes on Miami 4, where it says something like Rocky was beginning to realise that what he felt went beyond friendship. It was a kind of dazzling or a kind of adoration or something like that, which did give me that moment of wondering that as well. I think that there was a genuine affection between them because they were childhood friends and it didn't feel like... Like, Rocky was actually quite aware of Stan's flaws. He wasn't so dazzled by him that he couldn't see Stan's issues. So I think it was a genuine basis of friendship, but there was an implication that it was starting to turn into a bit of that almost brainwashing fanishness because maybe just unintentionally because that's just an effect Stan was having on people around him without even meaning to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's two things. Like, I don't think that there is an inherent charisma that comes out of all the next. I think in the previous book, that was a means to an end. Like they needed to do what they needed to do. So they used oh, yeah. charisma. They turned it on deliberately. Yeah. So that was using their intelligence to be like, how do we do this? Cause like in their own society, they're like, we don't care how we look. We don't, we just cut our hair. We don't do all this. Stuff. Like, but also there's the natural pull of power and difference sometimes as well. And so mm. I think again, with the heavy handed Jesus allegory towards the end, he's becoming more of a disciple than a friend because he's drawn to something in his mind that he's putting out into the world that appeals to him. So I think it's two different things there. I don't think it's they're inherently charismatic. They can just be more charismatic if they want to because they're so intelligent. They can see what will work to pull people's strings. But I don't think that's what Stan's doing at the end. Like I, I don't think he's deliberately being charismatic in order to get all these people on side. I think genuinely they're drawn to what he is saying, what he is, what he's doing. So that's what I mean by two different things. Mm. Mm. Okay. I mean, that is three years later. That's in 2059. So we're in the end game of the timeline of the book when Stan has become this sort of figure. He spent three years away from the next, having rejected their advances to become part of their group and instead has become more or less a religious figure. Like he's explicitly humanist and atheist. Like there's no really spiritual dimension. Well, I I think you could argue there is a spiritual dimension to what he says, but there's no religious dimension to what he says in the traditional higher power kind of sense or organized church kind of sense. His dad literally is in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, it's so so full on, isn't it? But he has that thing where, you know, there's the line where he sums up his philosophy in 11 words which are apprehend, be humble in the face of the universe, do good. And then he spends like the whole chapter unpacking that as a speech to his audience who are like, yeah. And you're like, it's not groundbreaking stuff, but he is quite charismatic. But the way he talks about it, you can imagine a crowd. I think they did a good job of writing his speech, even though I'm like, sure, this feels like first year philosophy stuff to me, but I get why a crowd would be like, I'm into this. You're explaining it well. You're funny. I mean, he makes a dick joke in front of his mum. It's like- yeah, you've got the you've got them in the palm of your hand. You can see that working. It makes sense. 
He's got the audience in the palm of his hand, by the way, not his dick. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, good. They did lampshade a little bit how first year philosophy, it seems like there's that bit where Martha's like, oh, that's pretty basic. Or someone says that and Roberto's like, no, if you, it seems basic on the surface, but if you drill down, he's actually saying things that are brilliant that are going to cause an entire religion. I'm like, you guys just making excuses. <laughs> You're just uh, telling us that it's, I mean, it's too deep for us, man, and we got to think about it harder. <laughs> I had the same thing when we got Roberta's explanation of how the soft places work. I'm like, that's a lot of words, not really say anything. It's like, oh, you just got to like visualize it. And then when it becomes in a sharp relief, you sort of step. And I'm like, that's nothing. You've just said nothing. But then they're like, oh, but when you do it in quick speak, it makes sense. I'm like, oh, when it's in the language that no one can, okay, write down. Convenient. <laughs> that we can't replicate on the page. Yeah. yeah okay. We got gotcha. you. But he's doing that. And that's when Sally and Roberta approach Rocky and say, we need your help to recruit him because we need him to do this job to save the long For earth reasons. and he's not going to come back from it and we need you to help us get him on side because we don't think he's going to talk to us. And I'm like, really? I feel like if you explained the situation to him, he would probably say, yes, I don't know that you absolutely. I mean, again, I think all that Rocky did was tell him, talk to these guys, and then they did all the talking. Like, all Rocky yeah. did was like. That does seem to be the case, yeah. It's not like he said, oh, you can't find Stan. I know where he is, like, which is which is kind of what Judas does, right? <laughs> like, he's like, you're looking for Jesus? I know where he is. Give me the money. That's not at all what he does. And yet they explicitly implicitly actually because agnes doesn't actually say the words but she does clearly say he's going to be the judas figure Mm -hmm. yeah it's rough but look i feel like we'll come back to them when we get to the end because we need to really get into the savage silver beetles (laughs) which is my mashup of two of the early names for the beetles as a band because that's clearly they kept calling them the silver beetles these aliens and i couldn't get it out of my head and i was just like is that where the idea came from? It's like, what if we make them silver beetles and then we can call them the silver beetles and put in some beetles references? What's something we dig? The beetles. <laughs> One of the early things that happens, uh, we haven't mentioned this, Lobsang fakes his own death. Why? It's so unnecessary. <laughs> I was like, stop it. Because he's a drama queen. <laughs> and he keeps telling people. And I'm like, just, just say, hey, I'm retiring. You don't have to have this whole fucking funeral and make everyone feel weird. It's- Deeply unnecessary. I think they just wanted that imagery of him being buried by other hymns mm. while George, mm. with quotation marks, watches and then they're like, yes, we, we know what's happening here. I mean, I guess... So unnecessary. I guess he is a public figure and he wanted to end that association and not be contactable because he already had the other identity. In the long war, he turns up as George Abrahams. That's the persona he's using when he gives Shimi the cat to Maggie Kaufman. Oh, and Shimi. We'll come back to Shimi, which is, by the way, just Tibetan for cat. It's not a very imaginative name for for a cat, (laughs) but that's okay. We don't need imaginative names for cats. But his last words when he dies are, it is not dying, it is not dying, which is from Tomorrow Never Knows, a song by the Beatles. Why? <laughs> no, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I was also like, this is very over the top. It's unnecessary. It was like when Star Trek is set, you know, 150 years in the future and all of the pop culture references are from the 1980s and 1990s because that's what the audience watching in the 1990s would have understood. Mm. Uh, and you're like, uh, <laughs> I know it's difficult to make up future pop culture, but can we at least pretend? It also sets up <laughs> really the no. confusing stakes, like emotional stakes over death in this book as well, because you're like, oh, mm. no, Love Sang's, no, he's, he's fine. That's okay. That's all good. She, I mean, she's, oh, God, that's that's not fine. That's not, But then you're like, maybe she's coming back, but she's definitely not. And then, like, Agnes, before you, you have a bit of an emotional thing, then you're like, nope, here she is forever. It's just, it's very 
And then at the end, like with everything happening again, I was like, well, the stakes have been so, I don't know what's actually going to happen here and not in a good mm-hmm. way. Mm. I don't want to linger on the funeral too much and the, and the fake death, but I think the one thing for me that kind of touched on what you were just saying, Liz, that I didn't buy about it is that I can't see Agnes going along with that scene where he fakes his death in front of his friends. Like I think she would have was been absolutely against it. And I can only imagine, and I don't think this is addressed in the text, but I can only imagine that he didn't tell her that it was going to be fake until afterwards. That's how I read and it. So too. she had to have a real reaction. And I still can't imagine her going along with that either. I think she would have said, get fucked and left at that point. Like, if he wants to be alone on the long earth and try being human, I can definitely see her being on board with that like she is in the text, even though she's consistently asking him, are you sure this is what you want? But I cannot see her agreeing to doing this harm to the people who loved him by pretending that he's dead. Especially since he keeps telling them. Well, he doesn't, though. He tells Sally, like, immediately. Well, Sally's the only one who knows. The only two people who know, apart from Lob saying, are... Agnes and Sally. The others only find out when he needs them. But Joshua's like, I suspected right? all along. So I'm just kind of like, why wouldn't yeah. you just tell this group of people that you're like, you are all fucked up? Like he was saying that. He was like, I'm all messed up after the next thing. I need to take a break. And then release a media release saying, I'm dead. And your friends will know. There you go. He should have told everyone who was in that room when he faked his death. Like he should have told them that, look, I'm going to pretend I'm dead so that I can start a new life on my own on another planet and I don't want you to bother me. Yeah. Like, that's what should have happened. I don't understand why Agnes and Sally were the only ones he told. I don't think it's really sold in the book. Especially given that it's usually Lob saying calling on them. It's not like if he, if they'd mm. known he was alive, they would have been pestering him for missions. It's usually the other way around. So it's not like he was the one who had to go off the radar to like retire. In fact, the only person who does know is Sally, and she's the one who actually ends up setting him up on this mission by putting him on this world. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not like he really yeah. needed them to not know either for what he wanted. Yeah, I found yeah. it very strange. And it gives us that funeral scene, which is the one place in the book we see some of my favourite characters from the previous books who otherwise do not appear. <laughs> like, particularly Maggie is there. And I'm like, yay, Maggie. And I'm like, oh, we never see her again. Uh, <laughs> great. That's a, a vibe across all of the books. <laughs> uh, we've already covered the sort of kickoff for this story, which is Cassie Paulson seeing this weird silver beetle alien thing in a hole in the ground on Earthwest 1,217,756 the new Springfield planet. And sometime later, Nikosh Irwin also sees them. This is like 16 years after that. Immediately gets freaked out. He goes underground, sees more of them because he's looking for his dog who's gone down the hole. And there's this big cavern that they've dug out under the ground. He's like, wow, this place is huge. Beetles digging out a cavern, eh? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. See, it doesn't stop, does it? Now we've moved on from a, I mean, and there's only one thing bigger than Jesus, as we all know, and it's the Beatles. So, <laughs> oh my God. That's how, that's how this works. Um, is this book just a whole, like, an excuse for a giant pun? Like, is it just built around maybe. that? There's your Terry Pratchett isms, <laughs> right? You, you were looking too small. You had to zoom out <laughs> to see it. But anyway, he realizes that they're stepping in from somewhere, even though they're underground, which should be impossible because you can't step into a place where there's no space for you to go as we discussed earlier, but he senses that somehow he can do it and he steps to another place and it's just like on the cue ball world. And this is the only reason we're reminded of that story is to say, sometimes you step in another direction and he ends up on what seems to be a whole other planet on the other side of the galaxy, possibly another galaxy altogether. And in the sky, he can see all these stars, but some of them are green. 
we don't find out what the significance of that is until later. And there's all these weird beetle aliens there. He manages to get home. He doesn't tell anyone. This is one of the things I find most unbelievable in the book, actually. He doesn't tell anybody for three days at all. He never tells his parents. But three days later, he goes back and he starts bringing his friends. Why? And a bunch of kids aged between 10 and 13 keep a secret about aliens in a hole for four years (laughs) while they are visiting them. Four years. And they start coming back with these weird silver bracelets and none of the other adults think to ask where they come from. The only one who notices is Agnes. (laughs) That's when she figures out what's going on. And I'm like, no way. No, I've I've worked with 10 to 13-year-olds. They can't keep a secret. Not for four days, let alone four years. Come on. Particularly when there's lots of them. Like, because he brings his mates back there so they can all see these cool silver beetle guys, the beetle men. And the society hasn't changed that much. Yeah, and yeah. especially given the fact that when he first saw the beetles, he was scared out of his mind. Like, he was terrified. He attacked one of them and then got transported to an, another universe and then just came back. And, like, that would have been an incredibly traumatic experience. And the book even acknowledges that he, could, he couldn't sleep that night. He was so stressed out. It's only that it happened to me when I was 10 years old. <laughs> oh, my God. I would have been so traumatized. But, like, three days later, like, you know what? Let's bring my friends back and we'll all just irresponsibly start trading with the alien beetles and uh, like universe hopping to what is clearly another planet. And I know they're steppers. I know they've got kind of different concepts of time and space from what we do, but I'm, I'm still like, you were pretty freaked out three days ago. You adjusted to that really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was weird. And it's only two years later that Lobsang and Agnes under their assumed names of ben George and, Ag- and Agnes. George, George and Agnes, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really change her name. In it, and, and they've got these, you know, new ambulant units, which is what they call the android bodies that they inhabit. Because in case you've forgotten, listener, Agnes, who was the one of the nuns who raised Joshua in the home where he lived, she died in one of the earlier books and Lobsang brought her back to life as an android in the same kind of body that he had. But originally, she was quite young and now she's got a body just like he does, which looks older and ages in a way that mimics natural aging and presumably can die. But we don't know. We don't get to test that in this book. Well, someone gets attested in this book. Well, that's, yes, that's, I wasn't going to remind us of that too early, but yes, that's, that's a let's, let's get it out of the way. Let's pull the bandaid off. Let's just, let's talk about that now. Okay. So they don't bring much with them. They bring like some farming supplies. They're basically going to set up like a farmstead, live on the long earth in a sort of traditional farming community. They ask Sally advice, who's the only one who knows that Lobsang's still alive. Where should we go? She tells them to go to this world knowingly and they set up a farm there. And the only people they bring with them, uh, Ben, Ben Ogilvy, the young kid who they've adopted, and Shimi the cat, who is no longer with Maggie Kaufman, presumably because she has retired. Although why she's given up the cat to, well, she's already done it by the time Lobsang dies. So I guess that means Maggie's retired already. Take your cat with you. They don't, I really wish I knew more about what happened with Maggie. Maybe in the long cosmos, mm-hmm. we've got lots of hopes. She's going to go to that moon earth and she's going to figure it out and she's going to have a big aside where she explains why she gave up her cat and what she's been doing for the last like 20 years. Look, fingers crossed. I can only hope. But the idea is they're going to live out the rest of their lives here and raise Ben as a son, tend to farm, just live like normal human folks. And that means that they will age and that includes Shimi the cat who helps Agnes because Agnes starts to suspect something's not right, like she's not sleeping well. She's seen these weird flashes of light on the moon that everyone's seen, but they all just go, oh, it's the long earth. Weird stuff happens, I guess. <laughs> like They don't really worry about it. 
it's a weird community where no one brings clocks because, you know, one of our things is we don't want to live to a timetable. We just get up when the sun comes up. We'll go to bed when the sun goes down. So no clocks allowed. It's a hard rule. So like who came up? Because I, th- I thought that was part of a conspiracy and then it's not. No, I was a bit fishy about it as well. Like I can kind of see that being a philosophy, but Lobsang goes so far as to say, well, we want to fit in. So I've also turned off the ability for us to access the internal clocks of our Android bodies. So we can't tell precisely what time it is, which means they don't realize until Agnes gets suspicious that the day is getting shorter on this earth. And she's helped figure that out by Shimi the cat, who is starting to feel a bit old. And there's one chapter... Chapter 29, the saddest chapter, because Shimi dies and says, you know, in the end, I was just Ben's cat and that's enough for me. Uh, look, I, I think you two might have been the same, but I, I wept. I read that and I was very sad. I didn't cry, but it was devastating. It was, I mean, animal death of any kind. And I, I would count Shimi as an animal and a pet, even though she's obviously meant to be this yeah. kind of like different being. Like she's very much written as their beloved family pet. And the sentience, just the fact she could speak on her deathbed just made that even more harrowing. Like one of the highest stakes moments in this whole book was when Nikos was chasing Rio into the cabin because I was like, Mm. if something happens to that dog, I'm throwing this book at the wall. Like that was what got me like reading through that scene at a lightning pace because I had to know the dog was okay. And I was so relieved when he woke up and Rio was all right. Uh, Yeah, and a pet death is just a particularly awful thing that I hate to read. And this scene with Shimi was just like this extra level of just emotion and tragedy. And I mean, I'm glad Agnes was there for her, but Lobsang wasn't there. Joshua wasn't there. She was passing on all these messages. Ben wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, Ben wasn't there. And Ben had never actually learned that Shimi was anything other than an ordinary cat. So it wasn't like she could say goodbye to him anyway, not in that way. So yeah, it was, oh, that scene was painful. I mean, I I have a feeling Ben will be fine because he's a young kid growing up on a farm. Mm -hmm. So he knows all about animal death and Mm -hmm. he's been, and and there's an earlier scene where they go on what they call an Easter egg hunt, which is one of their regular sort of hunting and foraging trips to the stepwise earths where they just go and find the local wildlife who are these sort of weird little furry kangaroo-like creatures and giant dangerous birds. And they just take their eggs and catch some of the small furry things to eat them. So he's, I think he's used to that, but it's different to lose like, you know, a pet than a farm animal. So he, he'll be sad, but I think he'll be okay. But still it was weird that he wasn't there Mm. and kind of devastating that scene. But it was nice that I feel like it's a it's a scene written by a cat lover. Mm. Like I can imagine Terry Pratchett having come up with that because of how much he felt about cats where, you know, you're personifying the cat and going, the cat seems okay. It's probably just happy that it's had a good life and it's going to die and putting those words into the cat's mouth. And I'm on one level, I'm like, that's kind of comforting. That's a nice thing to think about your pet when they die. But also it's kind of an arrogant human thing mm. to go, yeah, the cat's fine. <laughs> you're like, you don't know that. You don't know what the cat's feeling. But it was it was a very affecting scene. Whereas Rio, Nikosh's dog, also does die, but we get like one line about how on Rio had died sometime before and was buried in this earth that is yeah. now being destroyed. And you're like, that's it. That's all we yeah, find out. Yeah, like the fact that we found out about that in the context of the world about to blow up was just like, oh, so, I mean, I'm glad Rio isn't in pain or anything, but just it was Excuse a weird yeah. link to have to that destructiveness. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's get away from the devastating cat death to the less devastating but in a, an emotional sense, but more devastating in a physical sense, death of a planet that we are hurtling towards. A band from 1980 and a band from 2013. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. 
But look, they're living their happy life. Agnes figures out something weird's going on. What if the spinny boy was spinning too fast? <laughs> Which is a good premise, actually, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Earth is spinning too fast. The day is getting shorter because the rotation of this Earth is speeding up. And when she measures it, it's like an hour shorter than it should when be, Shimi which is throwing everybody's it. rhythms off. Shimi measures it, that's true. Helps her figure it out. She's also heard ghost stories about the old Paulson house, which is used as a swap house. They, it's basically an abandoned house where they put stuff they don't need in and then anyone can go in there and put something in there and take something that they need, which is it's cool. It's a cool community thing. But that's also where the kids go to meet with the Silver Beetles. And Agnes gets this story out of Nikosh and makes him take her and Lobsang there. And I, I agree with you. When they first show up, the Silver Beetles, the way they're described, you know, there's a lot of detail. They're very weird. Like, I love a good weird alien. They're called beetles, but they're not really beetles. They're kind of just beetle-shaped. They have lots of limbs, but they're partly made of this silvery metal and they're partly this weird organic stuff. And as we find out later, they're constructed. They make themselves out of the local materials. Like replicators from Stargate. Yeah. Well, they're a von Neumann replicator. Yeah, which is an idea that's been done a lot in science fiction. I remember I first encountered it in a video game called Star Control 2. Yeah, they're, they're exactly the same. They they replicate themselves and make more of them and keep going further and further. Yeah, it's, a, it's an old sci-fi idea, but it is a nice twist to see it be partially biological. But that did make them feel like not as bonkers new an idea as a lot of the other stuff in the Long Earth novels. When they first appeared and Nikos uh, stumbled into the planetarium, great name, by the way, I did like that. Um, when he stumbled into that, I, I loved that. I found that fascinating. And this idea that we got from the cube ball worlds of stepping north instead of east or west and ending up somewhere completely different that was like from outside our own galaxy looking in, that is fascinating. And I really wanted to explore more of that. And maybe, you know, Long Cosmos implies that the next book will explore that idea more. But I was really interested in that. It started off with this mysterious big scope universe stuff and then it sort of just narrowed down to beetles trying to destroy the world which i just found kind of depressing and not the most mm. interesting way of exploring that idea personally but that's yeah. not just me look i think for me it felt weird and out of place mm. like i come to the long earth to read stories about the long earth I didn't come to the Long Earth to read a story about an alien invasion of von Neumann probes mm. who are using a Dyson planetary motor to spin the Earth up and destroy it so they can turn it into a Dyson sphere and colonize this solar system, which is basically what's going on. So it's like three big sci-fi ideas, but at least two of them have been done a lot in science fiction. I've never seen a Dyson planetary motor in a sci-fi story before, so that was kind of interesting, like when they're exploring the world to figure out why is the day getting shorter? And they realize, well, the Beatles are doing it on purpose. They've built these massive metal bands all the way around the earth. And they're using these bits of moon that they're blasting off from the moon and pushing into earth orbit to impart more momentum onto the earth. Yeah, it was bonkers. Like that part of it was crazy. Yeah, like definitely some cool, weird concepts in there. Yeah. But also that's a concept from 1966, mm. you know, like Freeman Dyson wrote about those things in the 60s. And they were all the rage in the sci-fi of the 70s and early 80s. And now it's in a book from 2015. And it feels a bit like a throwback to like, what's a big crazy idea from the 1960s from science? This is it. Let's put it in a story. Like the space elevators are the same. Like they didn't show up in stories until like the 70s, but they've been written about in the 50s and 60s as a science concept. These days, you know, you expect 
the sort of cutting edge or big weird idea books from science fiction to be about things that are a bit more recent as an idea. So it felt a bit like a throwback. But on the other hand, while the other two ideas I've seen done a lot, I've never seen this whole let's spin a planet until it breaks apart before. So that it was it was cool and terrifying. Mm. But also the Beatles themselves go through a bit of a transformation, not not that they change at all, but our perception of them does. Because when we first see them, it's it's horrifying. And you think, yeah, it's a horror story. Something bad's mm-hmm. going to happen to this woman or this kid or his dog when they go into this underground and there's these weird creatures. But then they end up being very Borg-like, you know, mm-hmm. from Star Trek. They've got a job to do and they don't actually care about you. You're just in the way of their job. They don't even have to kill you. They're just going to step around you or, in fact, just let you destroy one of them because there's millions of them and they can always make another one. Like, they just don't care. They're just going to get on with the job. To the point where, you know, when the military Twain shows up, captained by Nathan Boss, who doesn't get much screen time but was Maggie's XO in The Long War. So it's nice to see him back, but you don't really get much of him. But he shows up to try and help. And the one thing they manage to do is disrupt one of their metal bands around the planet by dropping a nuclear bomb on it. But they just repair it within a couple of days. And so they're like, oh, these guys are implacable. Like, There's nothing we can do. And there wasn't an immediate sense of threat from them individually, but it was just this sort of idea of them being an unstoppable force. Like there's nothing you can do about it which is kind of terrifying in a very different way to the kind of horror vibe we got at the start. Yeah, I found that like really quite disturbing. And there was an implication that these creatures were probably, if not currently controlled, then at least initially created by some kind of other power, like some kind of race or some kind of like higher consciousness or something like there was something out there that had created these and unleashed this colonizing wave upon the universe and that was really Mm. terrifying because that's so mysterious and that sense of inevitability around these things that couldn't be easily stopped was really disconcerting and it made me also wonder if it was linked at all to um there was a similar implication of some kind of other power in the scene where they visit the Traversa planet and pick up the Mm. old Lobsang and there are these kind of living islands that go around picking up like biological samples and there's just this one throwaway line about maybe someone is collecting samples for something and I was like sorry can we go back to that like are you talking about like these things just having naturally evolved to do this as some kind of biological imperative are you talking about these things being created by some sort of alien life form? If so, is that sentience still out there? Is it going to come into this story somehow? So I'm curious just about these very brief glimpses we have of there being some kind of alien race out there that might be masterminding some of these things. And I have no idea if that's going to happen or if these silver beetles are just their own thing that then we're not going to hear anything more about their origins. But that was quite sinister to me as well, this sense that there might be something else out there pulling the strings and maybe Lobsang is going to encounter that and do something about it in the next book. But at this stage, hard to say. I mean, my dream Mm. is that the next frontier they go for is time travel in the next one. And it turns Mm. out that young Ben raised by Lobsang and Agnes turns out to somehow be the origin of all of this which would be quite cool because, you know, son of two people who were killed making the space elevator adopted by, like, the highest power, like, initially before the next and someone who raised Joshua Valiente. Like, he's kind of at the hub of a lot of things. I don't think, for the record, this is going to happen. This is just my, like, storytelling. Wouldn't it be cool if somehow he is the origin of all of this stuff? Like, he's the and grows up to be doing all of these things because he did also have the distant father figure who, like, let him down as well. And it's just, it could be something. It's not going to be, but it would be nice if it was. 
Yeah. I picked up on that thing that he said about the traverses as well. And I, I hope that there are some answers coming and maybe not through time travel. This. I don't know. That would be cool. But on the other hand, I didn't come to these books for time travel. I came for the weird other earths. Bring back they- all of the steppers together from the 1800s with the time travel and they oh. all mass together to kill all the somethings. Like- oh, I don't know. But they, they seem to want to tell any story except the one that they started telling. I don't know. I, I'm coming across very grumpy. I had a good time reading this book. It just was like not at all the book I was expecting or wanted because I mean and look League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is not what you signed up for (laughs) well no but the other thing is that they made a few promises at the start of this book that I don't think they deliver on because when Joshua right back in the first chapter in the first couple of pages is getting all reflective because it's coming up on his 50th birthday and he's thinking he's talking about how he still has a sense of wonder about the long Mm. earth you know to go back to something you were saying earlier Dion he's like why does it all have to be so strange (laughs) which may be one of the quotes of the book I don't know (laughs) Uh, and why did it all have to happen to me? And what's all this for, all these parallel worlds? And then there's a paragraph that says, as it happened, the answers to some of those questions were out there, both in the strange sideways geography of the long earth and buried deep in Joshua's own past. In particular, a partial answer about the true nature of the long earth had already begun to be uncovered as far back as July of the year 2036 out in the high megas. And that's when it tells us the story of Cassie Paulson first meeting the Silver Beetles. Oh, yeah. Which makes me think whatever happens in the next book has got to be more related to these aliens, right? But I don't think really we did learn anything about the nature of the... I mean, the one thing we learn is they figure out this is unstoppable. The Silver Beetles are going to spin up the Earth so fast that it breaks apart and is destroyed. And there's nothing they can do to stop that. The only thing that they feel like they can do is to make sure that these beetles who don't seem to be able to step anywhere except between their planet they're coming from and the new Springfield cavern, presumably it's never really said whether they can step onto the world from any other places. So why they didn't just fill up that cavern and <laughs> like, now you can't step in there, it's all earth. And how they got in there in the first place is difficult to know. But anyway, the only thing they can do is to stop them from stepping into the rest of the long earth. Like this world is done for. They can't save it, but if they can somehow cut it off from the rest of the long earth, then at least the rest of the long earth will be safe. And they work out that when people step, particularly if they're sensitive to the soft places and they can take those shortcuts, they're not just stepping through an existing shortcut. They're kind of altering and creating a shortcut through the long earth themselves because we already know from some of the theorizing in the earlier books that the long earth is somehow connected to consciousness because you only find it on worlds where there are conscious beings, supposedly. We don't know that for sure because obviously anywhere humans go, there's conscious beings, right? But because of that, they figure if we can get the next involved and if we can get someone who's good enough at this, they could pinch it closed. And the military come up with the term, the cauterizing, where they're going to, they envisage it as like, if you imagine the long earth as a chain, like a necklace, and one of the links is broken or it's become tangled with another chain, which is the other side of the galaxy where the beetles are coming from. We want to take that broken tangled link out and pinch the other ones either side of it together. And that's what they need stand for. And they recruit him and he goes with Sally and Lobsang. And there's that bit where they're convincing Rocky to help them. And this broke my heart where he says, will he be alone? And Sally says, I can promise you he will not be alone. And I was just like, oh, oh, that's getting me. Mm. Oh. And he's not alone because Sally and Lobsang go with him to help him do it. It has to be done from the inside. They have to be on the planet that they're removing from the long earth. And once they do it, they can't leave it. 
So they're going to be stuck on this world that's going to be destroyed. I found a little bit convenient. I was like, why can it only be done from the inside? Why can't you do it from the other side? Is that, I mean, there's not exactly science behind this, but. (laughs) No, and and they are making it up as they go along, you know, like we haven't heard much about how this all works before now. So they could have decided it worked anyway and it would have been consistent. But it did make, for me, it made an emotional sense mm. that that is how it would work. Like whether it makes logical sense, I don't know. That's always of secondary importance in these things. Just where the you're storytelling, making stuff it makes sense. But like in terms of rational, like even if you just needed one person on each side who was good mm. at it to do it. Mm. But yeah, storytelling wise, absolutely. Yes, mm. here for it. But I was kind of like, yeah. why does it have to be Stan? Why is he the chosen one as well? But yeah. You know, actually, while we're asking questions like why does it have to be Stan and, and that, one of the things that Lobsang decides he needs, he needs the help of the next, but he also gives Joshua a job. So he brings Joshua to New Springfield, oh, which yes. is when he reveals to Joshua, I'm still alive. I've been pretending to be George. They go on a bit of a trip around the planet, which is where they find the big metal rings and everything and figure out what's going on more or less. They still takes them a bit of time to work it out. Although we should have figured it out much quicker because as in the rest of the books, there's like a technical diagram on the inside of the front cover. Mm. And in this book, it's a Dyson planetary motor, which is a bit of a bloody giveaway. It's so funny Baxter. because when I um, opened up this book, I, I just finished up The Long Mars and I was like, oh, I'm so ready for like more trippy interplanetary stuff. I'm ready for like more weird shit. And the first thing I saw was conceptual diagrammatic sketch of the Freeman Dyson planetary spin motor. I'm like, okay, it's going to be one of those sci-fi books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the things that Lobsang says he needs once they've sort of got somewhere with working it out is he contacts the next, but he also sends Joshua off to find Sally and together to bring back the Lobsang they left behind in the first book, who was embedded in first person singular. And they establish in this book that the Traversers, who are these giant island-sized conglomerations of microorganisms who are collecting other life forms, most of them collect them and keep them alive, like the one that Nelson and Lobsang visited where Nelson, you know, got it on with one of the human inhabitants there. I think the sex um, barge sex sums it up. Sex barge from yeah. earlier. Yes, that's right. Uh, one of the things that they establish is that that's what they normally do. And that first person singular, the first and only one we met in the first book was an aberration because it was just absorbing life and seemingly destroying it on every world it went to, which was why the trolls were running away from it. And so they left Lobsang behind to kind of commune with it and go off and have adventures with it rather than it destroying everything. And now they go looking for it because they want that ambulant unit back. And they bring him back and he talks to the other Lobsang and they exchange some information. But it really, on reflection, I'm not really sure why he needed to be there. Mm. So they had someone who looked like Napoleon in these scenes. Because <laughs> he's only got one arm. And he's wearing a military uniform and they pin his arm to his thing. I was like, why, why, why? But I don't know history very well, so there could be like a great sort of comparison happening there, you know, when like Napoleon pinched together two, two well, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the great post-Waterloo cauterizing. I just want to clear this up, since it seems like the sort of thing we'll get mail about if I don't. Napoleon didn't lose any arms or hands. He was commonly depicted in paintings with one hand inside his coat, supposedly as a gesture of restraint. And if we're going to get specific, I should also mention that Lobsang's empty sleeve is just sewn up, as is common for folks who've lost a limb, rather than being pinned inside his jacket. George also had repair equipment hidden away on New Springfield for his and Agnes's ambulant units, so why he didn't repair the old Lobsang's body 
is just another unanswered question to add to the pile. Anyway, but they bring him back and exchange information and it's symbolically for the plot part of him giving up that normal life he promised Agnes he would have. And there's that moment where there's a town meeting with Captain Boss of the military twain is saying, look, we're going to evacuate you. This world's doomed. And the locals are like saying, no, this is our planet. We don't want to leave. And they're like, look, you don't understand. There's absolutely nothing we can do. It's going to be destroyed. And we don't really understand why or how. And Agnes sort of sees Lob saying, go, I've got to help them because I know. And she's like, don't you dare. And he's like, no, I'm going to tell them. And it's when he stands up and says, I can help you. And everybody like looks at him and goes, what do you mean you can help him? You're George Abraham's local farmer. And he's stepped back into being, no, I'm Lobsang, like omniscient computer man. And I'm going to save the day. And that's when Agnes is like, he's lost. He's lost me. He's not going to stick with this being a normal person. I've got to leave him and raise Ben by myself. So it's part of that sort of symbolic stepping away of his normal life. But I don't know practically, like, I'm not sure what information, maybe it was information about the long earth, like, that helped him figure out how it could be done. I'm not sure. Like, it's just, it, it, in retrospect, it doesn't seem entirely clear, a bit like why they needed Rocky to help recruit Stan, you know. Mm, it's Why they need Stan specifically. Yeah. But anyway, they do it. They take Stan to the new Springfield Earth. or They're already there. Actually, there's a really confusing bit where they're saying their goodbyes, which I think was on New Springfield and Mm -hmm. Sally does that thing when she's saying her final goodbye to Joshua where she just steps away almost mid-sentence without any kind of embrace or heartfelt sentiments. But then also the next thing that happens is everyone who was with them on New Springfield leaves and I'm like, wait a minute, didn't they just leave? Like, who's leaving who? Like, where is this happening? I got very confused by that. It is kind of funny to imagine Sally just literally stepping to another world to escape the conversation and then just stepping back again on, like, the other side of the room. (laughs) 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 I just wanted to get out of an awkward conversation. It's kind of a dream though, right? (laughs) Um, That's canon now. That's, that's, uh, that's canon. But yeah, they help Stan do the cauterizing as the world is starting to fall apart. And it's sort of these amazing descriptions of like how this world is part of a band of worlds, the Valhalla belt, where there's no South America, which means that there's um, a current that runs all the way around the world near the equator that warms up the whole planet and it means that the land masses on this planet are full of forests from pole to pole and there's a whole band of worlds like this. So it's quite warm and temperate and nice, but it also means that once it starts going haywire, all these like forest fires start breaking out, there's crazy storms, there's like tsunamis, there's earthquakes, there's volcanic eruptions and eventually the earth sort of flattens as it spins faster and just splits the crust and once it gets to sort of the breaking point, it just disintegrates, it just sort of explodes. But Lobsang, who has stayed behind to help Stan do this, because Sally sort of helps through her sort of intuitive understanding of soft places, Lobsang helps apparently by knowing the mathematics, although all he says is, imagine it like it's a string of links on a necklace. You're like, you didn't know. Lobsang is there to be a black box. Like that is the reason that the ambulance unit is there. Like that was the plan all yeah. along. He is there to gather data and then LaBelle. Yeah. And it, and that's what happens. But then he says, oh, wait, you know, they launched some satellites into orbit. I could probably put my consciousness into one. I've just thought of that. There's lot, it's not why I'm here. And the other two are like, yeah, totally do it. Can I have your sandwich, please? <laughs> this was literally <laughs> what Stan says. That was quite funny. I, I, I enjoyed that scene. And so he does, and he watches the planet be destroyed. And then he's like, okay, well, I've got to get out of here before these silver beetles harvest me along with all the rest of the bits of the earth they're going to use to presumably build a Dyson sphere. I'm going to leave and explore this world. And also I've realized conveniently this 
what one chapter ago was quite a primitive satellite actually has a full-on matter printer on board so I can just build myself a new body and do whatever I want in this universe. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hold on, hold on. (laughs) A chapter ago, this was a very primitive piece of technology. Now it's like the most advanced thing I've ever heard of. But was it a primitive piece of technology or is that just what he told them? Because it was the plan all along to be the black box. That's why he's And he makes his old hoary old joke as well, like he did last time, where he says, I'm going to once more be in with the Oort cloud. This is the third book he's made that joke in. <laughs> if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I don't know. Just uh, keep on yes, using I that guess. one. Oof. But that's how the book ends, <sighs> by the way. Uh, it's just the Earth is disintegrated and Lobsang just leaves. And we don't go back to the other Earths. No one addresses the question that really bugged me, which is you've taken an Earth out of the long Earth. Do you have to renumber them all now? Because that is a database management nightmare. Oh, God, I hadn't even thought of that. Although I do have a question, and this is heading into like the bigger question of how the long Earth even works. So maybe we don't have answers to this yet. But We definitely don't. I was a bit confused about this whole... So in the long Mars, it's established that the long Earth and the long Mars are not linked necessarily like you can step between Mm. mars's and step between earths and you can and through the gap you can get from an earth to that earth's mars and start the journeys but the mars you step to is not equivalent to the earth below Mm. basically that's right so how does this whole universe of the beetles fit into that it sounds like it is a different place far away in a universe that might have an Earth, like they are outside of our mm. galaxy, but they are still in a universe that somewhere has an Earth. So is the Earth that they were going to through the cavern the Earth of that universe, or are they on a basically a different part of the string of long Earths and Marses and long space, basically? Mm. And the reason I just want to know this is, like, does the cauterizing actually mean that the planets those bugs have already colonized are in this universe that has now been sealed off from the others or are there other access points on other planets? Apparently they can't step anyway. So theoretically, whichever universe they're in, they're basically contained to unless they find one of these like weak points in the fabric of reality, like the planetarium cabin to go through. But I'm still just confused about like sort of where their planets sit in this string of universes. Hmm. Well, I don't think it's clear. Like, I mean, yeah, it's interesting to me that they kept saying, well, they don't seem to be able to step, but they can step. They can step between the gallery and the planetarium, which is what they call the underground cavern. They don't call it the cavern. They should have called it the cavern. But they step between the gallery and the planetarium, but they can't step between Earths, or at least they've never seen any evidence that they can. But they can clearly step in some way because even going through a soft place, and that's actually a more difficult thing to do because not most people can't do it. You have to be a very talented natural stepper to go through a soft place or a natural stepper who doesn't realise it because that's what Happy Landings was at the end of, was a like a sort of a funnel mm. of various soft places where people would end up there. So the answer is we don't know. Mm. It's clearly meant to be in a different galaxy in the universe, but whether when you step through you're in the same universe or an alternate one, we don't know. Mm. Well, we could get into time travel here. No, sorry. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think the implication, though, is also that Earth is too far away mm. for them because they're in a different galaxy. It's too far away. Like, they wouldn't colonise it normally. Mm. And the whole point, and I think it's worth saying, because this is actually something that really bugged me about the book, is that a lot of what they say about what the Beatles are doing, yes, they bugged me, um, a lot of what they say about the what the Beatles or bugs or assemblers, which they are referred to a couple of times in the book, are doing is just guesswork. Mm. Like they look at the sky in the planetarium and they go, those planets are kind of green and those ones are normal looking. 
those green ones must be Dyson spheres. And when we look at those green ones, we can see debris. I'm like, what kind of telescope do you have? <laughs> Where you can see the debris, even the debris from a Dyson sphere, like if it's been destroyed, I mean, admittedly, it's so big that chunks of it could potentially be planet sized, but they're not going to be star sized. You can't see a distant star's bits of broken Dyson sphere. Like, I don't understand how that works, but that's how they figure it out. They just make all these assumptions based on 1966 Freeman Dyson theories and what they can see in the sky. And it all fits. Like, I, I have no reason to doubt that they're correct. But I just feel like you just keep telling me what you think the Beatles are doing and I have to accept that that's what's happening in the story. I mean, all the evidence of the planetary spin motor is there. They're clearly destroying the Earth and we assume that's to build a Dyson sphere and colonise this part of space. Um, because the other thing they say is that because there's bits of broken Dyson sphere, someone's fighting back against the Beatles who have built them. Um, so I guess Apple Corp. Uh, they're fighting against, against <laughs> Apple Corp's um, expansion into the universe, which makes sense because, like, you know, the planets are green, so they look like apples, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, they're fighting back against them, and that's why they're so keen to colonize this Earth and its part of the universe because whoever's fighting back against them aren't there. But that's all conjecture. <laughs> we don't know. And we never meet, like you were saying before, we never meet whoever mm-hmm. built them. We don't know what those aliens are like. We don't know what they're deal is and maybe in the long cosmos we we might find out but i suspect we will meet someone else entirely but in in stargate the person who made the replicators was a little girl who was lonely and just making little fun creatures so it could just be something like that (laughs) that's right i've forgotten that well look that kind of brings us to the end of the plot i think we've said everything we need to say about the plot there's lots of little intricacies but there's not as many different crazy things that happen in this one as we've mentioned a few times there's no denouement. We don't go back to the other characters and how they feel about everyone having sacrificed themselves. And we don't find out what happens to the colonists who were living there, who now have to sort of step around it. I guess it's more or less the same lifestyle for them. They just don't have their swap house anymore. Mm. So that's the end of the long utopia. What, is there anything, other things people wanted to say about it or any favorite bits you want to bring up before we get into some listener questions? I didn't like the ending. The book overall I did like, but and then this might just be a personal preference because I'm not a big fan of that sci-fi trope where the earth gets blown up. Um, that's just, I always just find that very depressing, <laughs> no matter how it's done. Um, so I wasn't a huge fan of that. And I thought that killing off Sally and Stan as these sacrificial lambs was quite bleak. That said, mm. I thought in a way it was a fitting end for Sally. Like I liked that imagery of the moth being engulfed by the flame. And I liked that acknowledgement that... She was the kind of person who could only ever really go out in a blaze of glory. She, the quiet life surrounded by loved ones ending peacefully with a whimper rather than a bang, that was just never going to be for her. And the fact that she was actually exulting in that death, I was like, okay, I mean, I don't love this, but I'm, I'm happy that you're happy about this, Sally. <laughs> like it, it seemed like a fitting end for her. And Stan, I thought it was very sad that this 19-year-old had to be killed off in this way. Like he was very young, but also he had accepted it. So... I thought in a weird way, despite having this quite bleak ending, it did end on a weirdly optimistic note, especially with Lob saying kind of making a joke and going on to the next thing. So I thought it was aiming for a sort of hopeful ending despite all that. But I thought it was really interesting. Before uh, Sally and Stan had even met on the page, I'd made this note to myself about why I liked Sally and Stan more than the next because the next are kind of assholes <laughs> and Sally is kind of an mm-hmm. asshole too. And I was like, why is it that I tolerate it in Sally, but I find it really grating in the next? And I think it's because, I mean, there are various issues we've talked about with the way that the next are represented. But I think 
Sally and Stan, they're kind of assholes, but they're assholes in a different way. And I think that they're united by this sense of justice. They may not like humanity very much. They're both kind of misanthropes, especially Sally, but they're interest in caring about the greater good and about making sure that they protect the people around them is something that actually distinguishes them from the next who are much more like, oh, we're higher life forms. We'll corral the humans as needed, but that's just like animal control, basically. They're not really that interested in the fate of humanity in that way. There was a kind of emotional parallel for me between Sally and Stan. So the fact that they ended up dying together in this blaze of glory, sacrificing themselves for a planet, actually did feel quite fitting for those characters. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Although I have to admit, like when they were talking about having a final meal together, mm-hmm. I really thought at some point they were going to like take cyanide tablets or something. I'm like, surely they haven't just left them to be disintegrated in a firestorm oh, yeah, or blown up or crushed <laughs> under rubble or, or whatever the hell is going to happen to them. Like they don't know, like no one's seen the end of a planet before. They can predict from a physics point what's going to happen in a big sense, but that's probably going to be an awful ending. And when they were describing it and they're sort of like thrown into this maelstrom of flying through space amongst all the sort of flotsam and jetsam of the disintegrating earth, uh, like Sally's internal monologue is like, yeah, I'm going to go out and she's like going, woo. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I can kind of see that for her character, but for Stan, I'm like, he's 19 years old. Yeah. Like, and he's quite stoic about it because he's an ex and because of who he is, but also he does have that moment where he's like, you know, I didn't get to live a very long life. There's lots of stuff I didn't get to do, but at least I'm going out doing something good. But then he's sort of like just thrown into the void and destroyed rather than, I just, I just thought that was a real, and particularly from a book written by Terry Pratchett, who, as we know, is very pro around the dignity of death. Mm. I thought that was a really weird thing to live out. Like, yeah, we're going to put you on this planet that's going to be destroyed, but you just have to get destroyed with it. That's just your lot now. I agree. I didn't like that either. And I didn't really, um, the description of the, of what was happening to the earth was really interesting, as you were saying earlier, Ben. But I was also like, I don't really need a five page detailed description of the world being destroyed this way. This is really heavy. (laughs) And I was like reading it right before bed. And I was like, how am I supposed to just go to sleep after this? I had to watch an episode of Taskmaster to cheer myself up. (laughs) Then three days later, you're right back there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was was a lot. Yeah, it was it was intense. It was intense. Look, in terms of favourite bits, I want to touch on something you were just saying, Dion, about Stan and why we like Stan. And I think for me, one of my favourite lines, and there were quite a few, but not necessarily heaps that I want to read out. But after he's been shown around the Grange and he's seen what the Next are offering, he says, so is this the outcome of your great Next experiment? Humans like Jules here reduced to performing tricks for your approval, all their dignity gone, your own lost children crying without comfort in the dark. He glared around at the Grange as if in disgust. Is this the best you can do? Fuck yeah, Stan. You tell him. I, <laughs> I hate these guys. That. that was so validating and satisfying. Yeah. And he was saying what we were all thinking because that's how I felt about the next and their smug superiority this whole time. Like they're very bent on this idea that we get it. Like you don't get it, but anything you don't get about us, it's because we are above you and you just don't understand. And I was really glad that Tom's actually like, this is the best you can do. <laughs> like this is your, you know, great next step for humanity. Philosophy yeah. in the spa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, philosophy in the spa. I think you nailed it with that description. <laughs> That's exactly what the Grange is. I feel like they're going to send out brochures for the Grange. Uh, like that golf club that they briefly mentioned, so not golf club, but you know, like when he was doing his birthday walk and then he was like, here's one of those like touristy places on the low earth. I thought that was a cool thing. I guess that's kind of one of mine that I 
really enjoyed that as an inclusion, that there would be this weird high-end tourism still happening in this mm. society. I would have liked more of a look at it, but it felt a lot like mm. that in lots of things in the books. Like you sort of whiz past something, you're like, oh, that look- oh it's gone. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if actually we get more of that idea of high-end tourism if we return to whatever happened to Douglas Black and his little utopian society. Mm. That was going to be mostly like super wealthy people who he was gathering in his, you know, fountain of youth world. I don't know if um, it'll be oh, tourism yeah. exactly, but I, I think there'll be some interesting social commentary through whatever he's doing with them and the ultra-wealthy and how they're using the long earth. Um, I also... Enjoyed's not the right word, but um, when Nikos is talking about the ways you can die on on their world, is like the big birds is one, there's another one. But then there's like, just very briefly, the ant swarm, and it's like this thing that comes through. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, oh, it's like, if I'd read this as a child, it would have, because like, I think when the X-Files were the glowing green bugs like gather around you and put you in a cocoon, but or like the tiny little dinosaurs in Jurassic Park that sort of like, Mm. Climb all over you. So I was like, that's all the terrifying. scarabs in the mummy. Yeah. I was <laughs> waiting for that to become like, but yeah, it was just brief mention of all the like little horrors lurking in this one that the original Paulson, she was like, it's so safe here. It's nice. It's like, it's jungle and I feel good. And I was like, later on, they know that these things are happening. So. Yeah. I um, I had to actually go back and double check Nikos's age when I was reading that because I was like, this kid is like, he's a survivor. He is really aware of this dangerous world he's in and he's quite philosophical about the fact that, you know, if the birds don't get you, then this might. And he was only 10. I was like, geez, like it kind of highlighted that although this hunter-gatherer lifestyle is painted as quite utopian, it's also like there's a real understanding from a young age that you have to look out for yourself because they are living closer with animals and predators and that kind of thing. And actually, I love that you brought that up, Liz, because one of the bits I'd highlighted that was one of my favorite lines was, I think, in that scene where um, it says, Nikos had seen for himself one unwary kid get caught by a big bird and it had been a terrible sight. And so you kept an eye out because of that weasel word, almost. And I just love that Mm. idea of this word, almost, because as an editor, you're often told to keep an eye out for weasel words, which are basically these words that dilute the meaning of a sentence because they like almost and nearly and they kind of seems like dithery buffer words that take away the meaning. And almost is one of those words you're often told to slice out, to cauterize, if you will. <laughs> and um, and so I loved this little reference to that and this idea that that weasel word almost, that in a grammatical sense you're meant to just get rid of, that can be the difference between life and death when you're out there in the world. And that one one or two chance possibility that it could be you is what keeps you being wary. That just seemed a really interesting idea to me. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think we spent like a third of the podcast on my favourite part of the book, which was going back to the 1800s. So um, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. I Look, I, I was very harsh on that and indeed on this whole book, but I did have a fun time. And I, I think I just, it never feels fair to criticise a book for not being the book you imagined it mm-hmm. would be. I feel like there's an element of that, but for me, there's also the book that I expected it to be based on the books that came before it. Yeah. And also the fact they keep laying down all these ideas that you feel like, that's great, use that. And then the things that they do reuse, they reuse in ways that just don't, like they revisit the cue ball just to make sure you know that they have previously said that there can be these weird connections in other directions. We didn't just make it up for this book. Was this world like a subtle joker? Like, is, was that also the implication or not really? This, the one yeah. where the Beatles came through. Yeah, I think so, because there's no implication that it's happened on any of the other nearby worlds, which would make it a, a joker. 
yeah, it's a good way to think about it. And it seems like the Joker worlds are the only ones that have these um, like north stepping anomalies as well, which I find interesting. And I hope that will come in plot wise in future because I do think that this whole mm. uh, stepping north thing is going to come back because Sally, when they did set aside the world that they were in with the Silver Beetles, she made a note of saying, well, now that they know that's possible, are any other next going to start doing that to other worlds? Like now that they realize they can actually change the chain, the necklace that is the long earth and detangle and retangle it, what's this going to mean for the bigger implications of the worlds? So I, I suspect that mm. might come back in. Um, so that'll be interesting to see if they explore that northward stepping a little bit more. But through yeah. the Jokers is why I mentioned that. Hopefully. I mean, because the moon one would have been a Joker as well. So it's, yeah. there's still hope. Maybe that's how Maybe that's how yeah. we get there. <laughs> Actually, I could, maybe that's even what happened. And now I'm purely speculating, like the scientists looking at the stars in this yeah. book. But um, maybe that's what happened to the people who were on that planet, um, the, the Earth moon. Maybe they found some kind of like soft space of fabric that took them somewhere else. Mm. No, I think they totally got abducted by the creatures that live on the moon. Also valid. I like that theory too. Abducted, eaten. And I really want to. I really want to know more about oh, that. Okay. I, re- I never will. I'm. I'm convinced. I'll never know. I'll I never we'll ever the fan know. Fan Whereas I feel like Maggie would never have rested until she found out what happened to them. There's just one other bit that I, we haven't touched on. I want to mention briefly, which is when Joshua goes to look for Sally to get her help to retrieve the other lob saying. He finds her on this far-flung world where she's staking out a homestead. And this is just a very – it follows on directly from stuff she was doing in the other books, but she's basically sitting there with a rifle pinning down the people who are in the homestead because they have arrived from another world and murdered and assaulted the people who established that home just because they couldn't be bothered building their own one. And she's like, fuck those guys. I'm staying out here until they starve to death. And Josh was like, I could go get the military. There's an organization who can deal with this. And she's like, that's not what this is about. And that's sort of her frontier justice. I'm going to be the cowboy in the white hat who turns up and wreaks revenge on the people who are fucking over honest pioneers. And it's a very her attitude. And I think it sets up that ending for her quite well. Like that's absolutely how she would go out Mm. saving the entire long earth. Mm. Mm. I have one more bit to highlight that I like. And I mean, this plays into all the Christ allegories, but it was actually a part that I thought was handled quite well. Near the start where Stan is talking to Rocky and he takes him to this, I think it's like a museum of cathedrals from the mm. Yellowstone Earth. And yeah, he's talking right. about places of worship and um, why he's not really a fan of religion, but he kind of essentially, I don't think he phrases it exactly like this, but he's essentially saying, I'm interested in the spirituality. It's just the way that religion has institutionally worked doesn't work for me but he has this line where he says in a place like this you can reject the answers those builders accepted you can even reject the questions they asked but you have to cherish the urge to ask such sublime questions in the first place I thought that was a really interesting line and also kind of worked as a metaphor for this series (laughs) because we criticize a lot the um the execution of these ideas, but I do appreciate the ideas and the questions that they are asking with the Long Earth series. I think the concepts are great. Mm. I think the questions and the ideas they're exploring is so interesting. It's just that often the actual uh, writing of it falls flat for me personally or in the ways that they structure the plot and that sort of thing. But I I appreciate the ideas that they are raising, I think are very interesting. Mm. And look, I think by this book, 
it did get a fair way on the fact that I did care about the main characters because I spent three books with them. Like I care about what happens to Joshua and Sally and Lobsang and Agnes and some of the other characters. And then, you know, the, they keep bringing in these new characters and getting rid of the ones that I loved. <laughs> I really missed Maggie in this book. Like I appreciate that she's passed the mantle on to Nathan and that he's got his own ship now, but I was also just like, oh, I miss her. And then when they do introduce characters you like, they kill them off, like Stan. I was getting quite attached to him. I know. More so than some characters who've been in it for four books <laughs> and then he died. Mm. But did he? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's, he's dead, but like the stakes are so low that they might be like, oh, well, actually, I also uploaded his consciousness and I've printed out this new Stan and a new Sally and here they are. <laughs> it doesn't seem like he's going to do that, but who knows? Yeah, it's who just the stakes are all skew if. Yeah. Well, one thing that's definitely not skew if are uh, the questions that we got from our listeners. They were great. We should try and answer some of those. Liz, do you want to kick us off with the first one? Yeah. So our first question comes from Ian via Discord. So not really a question, but how did you cope with the sudden appearance of a plot in this book? I love the picaresque travelogue nature of the whole series, but having to deal with a proper story in this volume was an utter joy. Yeah, I love, I love there being a plot. Oh, there's several plots. I have this line in my notes. The title of this book series should be The Long Game because that is what they are playing in the way they pace it. Like they are playing the long game. And that's partly because of what I mentioned before about how for me it feels sort of like almost one big book that's a collection of vignettes. Um, but also just in the way that the payoffs and the pacing work, like they will set up an idea in book two and you spend book three and four going, oh, well, that one, that, there was never any payoff for that concept. And then book five, it's suddenly important again. It's quite interesting to read something where the setup and the payoff are happening across different books. And often that makes, you know, the books individually a bit disappointing because you feel like there are these loose ends that never really went anywhere. But if you look at it as kind of one big overarching story, or just kind of with weird section breaks <laughs> almost, <laughs> just, yeah, really makes me feel like they're playing the long game like they are looking at this from a much bigger perspective than we as readers tend to be where we're focusing on the kind of more the minutiae almost like those philosophers they talk about in this book where they've got the ones who focus on the cosmos and the ones who focus on like the flowers because you know you need those different perspectives oh yeah even among the next look i i think that's an optimistic view <laughs> i felt like that up until the last book i feel like this book has really tipped me mm -hmm. i i was so into this up until the long mars I particularly liked The Long Mars and its weird, weird travelogue. And in this book, I liked that there was a plot, but also I felt like you could have summarized this plot quite briefly. Like the most of the plot is about the Beatles destroying an earth. And so much of that plot is them figuring out what the Beatles are doing when they've drawn a diagram of what they're doing in the front of the inside of the book. Like I knew, I saw where that was going. Did I know it was going to destroy the earth? No, but I kind of knew what was being built. And the question for me was why, what's the purpose? And the reason they figure out the purpose is they make some assumptions based on some lights they can see in the sky. And I found that deeply unsatisfying. As much as I enjoyed the journey of it, I think when I got to the end, I was like, compared to the previous three books, very little happened in this book. Like one big thing that took a long time. And I also feel like that's unfair of me. I, I'm so in two minds about this book every time I think about it. But it was nice to have a plot, but I just felt the plot was a little bit straightforward and underwhelming. And so much of it was told to us by people explaining what was going on to each other that I found that very tedious. Like there was so much expository dialogue. Mm. There was not a lot of showing us. You know, they're looking at the world to see what the motor is, but then just explaining how it works. That was all people just telling us. 
Oh, that's how I feel. I'm very conflicted about this one. Our next question comes from Bell via Discord. <laughs> what do you think actually superior human beings would be like? So Bell had an answer for this. Ben, do you want to read it? Yeah, Bell sort of went in to say that she feels they'd have a much deeper insight into the human condition and not be like computers, uh, which I think is a very reasonable statement. I think I, I can't remember if I said this in the last episode, but one thing I thought when the next were introduced in the Long Mars was this feels like a very old fashioned and very incorrect idea about what autism is like, like from the 1950s, mm. which we now know is not at all what it is like. But that's how it was portrayed. It just feels kind of gross. And I don't think that's what advanced human beings would be like. I agree with you, Belle. It depends on what we mean by advanced human beings. And also it would depend on the timeline upon which they appeared. Like is it if we suddenly do have a jump like the next or if it's just like the slow march of evolution. Like it's hard for me to actually imagine because you know how like we've all evolved from different trees and things. Like would it would it mm. actually be an advanced sort of human or would it be an, another kind of thing altogether? Like would it then actually be an us and them situation? Or like would we still be around when they are here or would we have all become them? So I guess I'm probably overthinking it, but it's more like if something like the next emerged in our society, what would that actually look like? I guess. Mm. Mm. And I don't know because well, they have such close ties to us being all around them. I don't think it would be something like this where they're suddenly able to just like switch off and be like, no, we're our own thing. You are animals. I don't think it could be like that unless like there literally was yeah. no empathy possible because of brain chemistry. But in terms of just socially developing, no, I don't think that is what would happen. I felt like this book had a parallel between, and this might have been part of the reason that we had that flashback to Victorian London, there was a parallel between essentially the breeding program of the steppers because a lot of that language that Hackett was using around why they had to strengthen the blood and create more steppers actually kind of echoed the way the next talked about themselves and this idea that they were a special kind of human that needed to be protected and increased because they were where humanity was heading next and they would be the, the better form of humanity. So I thought it was quite interesting that the next looked down on steppers the same way they looked down on all other non-next humans, but the steppers had basically done the same sort of thing a few generations earlier. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think that comes back to the question of how do we even define evolution and what the next step of humanity is. And yeah, I mean, I've talked a bit about the things about the next representation that make me uncomfortable. And I agree with you, Ben, that a lot of it feels outdated. But to me, call me an optimist, but I, I think that a great emotional intelligence and, and feeling for other people it would be kind of our next step. I think that forming social groups and protecting each other and connecting with each other is kind of one of the fundamental aspects of the way human society works. So this idea that we would separate from that the more intellectual we come doesn't really fit for me. I feel like if we're going to um, increase any aspect of our humanity more, it's probably our tendency towards social groups and towards connecting with each other. And that's not to say that we would be less intelligent or that people who have um, neurodivergencies or complex relationships with empathy and emotions would not be a part of that. It's just that I think that kind of social grouping is more the way we tend to evolve. Hmm. The thing that makes it feel weird and dated is that they talk a lot about high level societal evolution and the way people live changes. They don't talk about the way that people, you know, interrelate. They don't talk about social evolution on a, a personal scale. And that's always the thing that dates science fiction. Like if it's, there's a Star Trek episode where someone finds someone being queer weird, we look at that and go, well, that can't be the future, right? 
because we're trying, I mean, now we might see it as a dystopian future story, right? Based on what's happening in some places in the world now, but it feels backwards to mm. where we are now compared to when it was made. And in the same way, you know, there's no embracing of neurodiversity. There's no understanding that just among regular human beings, people's brains work in different ways and we need to be open to and understanding that. Instead, we've got this sort of X-Men like now there's this bunch of people who, you know, don't like human emotions and they're like human computers. They're weird and they hate us. Like that doesn't feel, and we're going to treat them like a threat. It's gross. <laughs> um, it puts me in mind a little bit of there's this anthology that was released years ago called Defying Doomsday. And the idea behind it is that the writers, many of whom were themselves disabled, were writing kind of dystopian, post-apocalyptic speculative fiction from the perspective of disabled characters, looking at how people with disabilities would actually adapt to and thrive in a dystopian environment. And it was meant to be subverting this common trope in dystopian fiction where, like, there's this idea of survival of the fittest equals the physically weakest are the first to go. And that often leads to this kind of weird eugenics idea that pervades a lot of sci-fi where there's, like, utopian futures are ones where no one has a disability because that would be bad, right? And so we have to breed that out of the people. And it's, like, it's very troubling, obviously. And I really like the fact that we're getting more of this fiction, like what's in the Defying Doomsday anthology that acknowledges actually, A, there should be a place for disabled people in utopian societies. Being disabled is not automatically this bad thing that you have to breed out. And B, disabled people are often actually the most adaptable people, the ones who are most equipped to deal with disasters and change because that's something they have to deal with as a day-to-day part of their lives in societies that aren't easily accessible to them. So, yeah, I think also that adaptability is something that I would like to see more of in concepts of how, you know, our future as humanity might work. So the next question comes from Sven via Discord. I get the feeling that famous authors get to a point where nobody, aka editors, will tell them when their books get too long or convoluted. So Stephen King and Tom Clancy are some examples that Sven has listed. Do you believe that a novice author would have gotten this book published if not with two famous authors on the cover? (laughs) This is, Sven, this is a rough question. I mean... Oh, I, I confess I did have thoughts along these lines reading this book. I think I said that, you know, I felt like it needed another pass. There were some of the pros that felt, uh, and there was a lot of exposition and stuff that was kind of directly explained to us that I would have liked a bit more show, don't tell in some parts. I don't think it was too long. I don't think that was the problem or convoluted. I just feel like it needed another pass and maybe, and I'm full on speculating, but maybe they didn't feel like they wanted to change too much of it beyond what Terry was able to write because he mm-hmm. wasn't around to approve any changes or make any more himself or, or available. He was still around when this would have been an editing stage. So, yeah, I don't know. What did you think, Dion? I love this question. Um, like you say, it's it's rough, but uh, I, I think it's honest. Um, I think like it's definitely not the worst published book I've read or anything like that. Like it's not <laughs> one of those books you read and go, how did this even get published? It's so bad. Like I think it's a decent book, but I do think that it was coasting a little bit on the fact that, I mean, even just when you look at the cover, you can barely see the book title. It's all just Pratchett and Baxter. Like they are, they, it's this thing <laughs> in publishing that the more famous an author is, the bigger the font of their, their name, name is. Always held. <laughs> like when a book is written by someone famous because the title is barely there. And you can definitely see that with these books. And I mean, why wouldn't you really? Like Terry Pratch and Stephen Baxter, they're huge names. They're really good, well-known writers in their own right. So um, mm. if you've got them working together, I can understand how a publisher will be like, 
splash that across the cover. Um, but I think if this book were written by a novice writer, it probably would not have been published the way that it has been. It probably would have had another edit or it might have even struggled, honestly, to just have gotten a contract because I think that the series premise is really interesting, but this book in and of itself is not necessarily compelling enough to make a publisher take a, a risk on a relatively unknown author. I think it's the kind of book that you have to be a pretty established, well-known writer to put out there, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. I think also, if we assume that it would still be the fourth in a series, if the series had sold well enough that they'd got a contract to write two more books and finish it off, I think it just would have gone through another edit. But I, I certainly, I agree with you. I don't think this is like one of the worst books ever written. It certainly didn't coast in only get published because of the names on the cover it's an okay book but i yeah mm. it was a bit of a disappointment to me mm. we got one last question liz before we wrap up our final question comes from luke via twitter using the ability to step through space and dimensions you can visit terry pratchett's other book slash world which terry pratchett characters would you like to see interact across worlds and how would seymour dibbler use this technology <laughs> okay. All right, Luke, I'll give you this one. This is fun. So now that we've established that, yes, the long earth can step between universes, what's to stop Joshua Valiente from finding a soft place and ending up on the disc world? <laughs> like it could happen. Who do you think would be great for these characters to meet? Oh, God, it's a really interesting thought because these books feel tonally so different from the Discworld that it's just mm. hard to even imagine these characters in the same room. Like, I just can't mm. imagine Joshua Valiente in the same room with, like, Lord Veterinari. I just don't even know what that would look like. Um, I mean, yeah. I think Veterinari would pretty quickly have some schemes and plots around how to use Joshua. Like, he'd, he'd identify him in the same way Lobsang did as great. I can use you. But... Yeah, I don't know. It's like Moist encounters the multiverse. I just don't even know how the Discworld characters. He would totally be one of those characters who'd team up with other versions of himself, though, right? If that was how yeah, it worked. Yeah, he totally would. I think in terms of this, like, yeah, one of the problems is all of the other stuff that Pratchett's written is very rooted in fantasy worlds. I think the, the only things he's written that are set on a world that's very much like ours really are um, more the stuff he's written for younger readers. The Truckers books, the Johnny books, and Nation as well are all set on our world or a version of our world that's pretty close. I think Johnny could fit into these stories maybe. Like I think if the Long Earth, you could imagine Johnny growing up, he's dealt with in his life video game aliens becoming real, ghosts, time travel. It seems like not much of a stretch for him to have been there on step day. <laughs> And I feel like a story <laughs> where we see the British perspective of Step Day from Johnny Maxwell, who would have been, uh, let's say, I think I've established when reading those books that he is about my age. So he would have been in 2015, he would have been in his mid thirties. And maybe that's something that can happen. Like someone could step crosswise into Blackberry, but that would, I think that's more just sort of incorporating him into the long earth rather than crossing the worlds. Imagine though, there's the long disc. So you can step to infinite other great attunes. Step on the turtles. <laughs> yeah, it really is turtles all the way down. Um, <laughs> I reckon Dibbler would be totally, he would be on in a shot to the Valiente burden plan of mining precious gold or gems or something from stepwise discs. He would totally be doing that. And I wonder if they would, I don't know if they'd call it Widdershins and Turnwise because... They that might be too confusing on the disc. 
Yeah, true, actually. I mean, they do have different laws of physics on the disc. We tend to sort of forget that because um, often it's not there in the day-to-day life, but the universe is set up a bit differently from ours. So, mm. yeah, that would be really interesting. I can imagine them thinking of it going up and down maybe, like there's discs stacked on yeah. top of each other. So they go, they step up or step maybe down. Maybe when you step, stepping north takes you to the Silver Beetles, stepping south takes you to Discworld. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, now I really want to, and I think maybe this is something we touched on in a previous episode where someone asked a similar question, but I kind of want Lobsang to meet Hex mm. and exchange information about the way the universe works. And then suddenly Lobsang will understand magic and Hex will have an understanding of round world science, although they already have a way into round world. So maybe they don't need that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> be interesting to see the conversations though. It would. It would. It could be fun to see the 18th century knights of this corporea might fit in with the world of nation if they meet mm. the new king and, and serve that British empire. And that British empire and that world actually could probably use some long earths because they're having a real bad time with a real bad pandemic. Yeah, true. So that's a few ideas. I'd love to know what you, listener, think would be a fun pairing of characters from different Terry Pratchett universes of which there aren't that many, but there are a few. So if you've got an idea about who from Discworld would enjoy stepping north or up or wherever they go and meeting people from the Long Earth or one of his other worlds, let us know. Uh, But look, that kind of really does bring us to the end of the episode. Dion, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank Um, you for bringing me back for episode 69. (laughs) (laughs) You had to get it in one more time, didn't you? Yeah, I was like, I said I'd do it first and we've got to do it last as well. Uh Um, But no, it's been really wonderful. Um, I really enjoy talking about these books. Even though we critique them and they're not always the most fun books to read at times, they are very interesting to talk about and Mm. it's always an honor to be asked to talk about them. So thank you. Oh, well, we're so glad you came back and we're hoping you'll come back again. We're hoping to get both you and Joel back to read the final book in the series, The Long Cosmos, and see what we all make of it, having gone through this journey together. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, But in the meantime, you've been reading some other books. Are there any things that you would recommend to Pratchett fans or people who are looking for something? Maybe, I mean, it's hard to recommend anything much like The Long Earth. I don't know that there is much like it unless you go back in time to old school sci-fi, but maybe something that people who are fans of more regular Pratchett fare might be into. Yes, actually, I have been rereading a very different science fiction series recently. It's called The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. I highly recommend them. They are a really good example of big concept, hard science fiction with a huge amount of heart. I think of them as very character-driven stories. Um, They're very funny. They're very action-packed and entertaining. They're quite uh, short reads too. Most of them are novellas. I actually found myself quite a lot as I was reading the Long Earth books, comparing them to the Murderbot Diaries, which isn't necessarily fair on the Long Earth books because they're different series doing different things. But the Murderbot Diaries are just such a great example of how you can have strong world building and strong characterization and plot all together. Those things can inform each other. And in particular, you can have a story about a character who is not human and who doesn't want to be human, there are these artificial intelligences who have higher intellect who are still just incredibly emotional, interesting characters with interesting relationships. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I find most fascinating about the Murderbot books is that a lot of sci-fi series 
will focus on the question of what it means to be human. But I think these books are about the question of what it means to not be human and about how we tend to associate rights and autonomy with how human you are. The extent to which you can prove your humanity is the extent to which you will be allowed to have say over your own body and around who owns you or who has control over your life. And the, the mm. character in the Murderbot Diaries is a essentially a, a robot who has human organic parts but thinks of itself as a robot who uses it pronouns, like who does not see itself as a human and is not really interested in having human ideas projected onto it, but who also feels very protective and attached to the humans that it meets and whose whole thing is that it loves to watch soap operas instead of like <laughs> killing off humanity. Like it's it's a very right. clever premise and it's it's executed really well and you just ca- I care so much about these characters. Um I just I really love them. So yeah, I would recommend that to anyone who enjoy the long earth books but wants to explore some interplanetary travel and some interesting sci-fi that is much more driven by the relationships between the characters that sounds amazing look and just really it, funny. <laughs> <laughs> well that's good it is actually one that comes up quite frequently among some of our subscribers as one that they recommend to each other so listener i don't know if we've ever actually talked about it on the podcast before so thank you for bringing it up <laughs> Uh, I have not yet read them, but they sound amazing. And it's interesting that you say, you know, it's not about what it is to be human. It's about what it is to not be human. I feel like the long earth starts off a bit like that with Lob saying, but then they just sort of get on with him being a character. No one ever questions that he's not alive. And there's even, you know, bits in this book mm. when he dies, there's the bit where Agnes is upset and is like slapping him in the face to say, don't die. And Joshua has that reflection that it's synthetic hands and synthetic mm. cheeks. And yet the emotion could not be more real. And it's quite an emotional moment. So I think there's definitely something of that in the earlier Long Earth books, which sounds like Murderbot would be a great segue from. <laughs> so thank you. They've already been on my to-read list, but I think you've just bumped them up several <laughs> spaces. I'm glad to hear. I hope you enjoy them. I always feel a sense of responsibility when I recommend a book series and I gush and rave about it. And then I'm like, mm. I'm going to read that. I'm like, oh, well, uh, now, I, now I feel like I've, uh, I've set you up. So I hope that you enjoy it. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. So thanks for that recommendation, Dion. And thank you, listener, for sticking with us in what has been a very long episode about a very long book in a very long series. We'll be coming back again next year for The Long Cosmos. I hope you'll join us then and indeed every month in between. And I also want to thank you for bearing with us as we've had a few difficulties these last couple of months with this episode coming out late uh, and our Strata episode being delayed. But good news, we've been able to record our Strata episode, so that'll be coming out next month. It's still numbered Pratchett 68, uh, just because we didn't want to mess with that too much. Uh, So that'll come out next month. And the month after that, we'll be reading the Discworld short story, Theatre of Cruelty, one of the earlier Discworld short stories featuring the Ankh-Morpork City Watch, our old faves, uh, which is good because we actually only have one book left featuring them. So it's good to get a bit more of them in before we get to the last few Discworld novels. So that's Theatre of Cruelty. That'll be our episode for September. The hashtag, if you want to send in questions via social media, is Pratchat70. And of course, you can also email us questions at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. We'd also like to send a big thanks to our subscribers. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep making this podcast without having to resort to advertising or sell our soul to some horrible corporation who wants to replace 
humans with artificial intelligences or just not pay anybody anything. Look, it's a it's a heck of a time to be in the entertainment industry at the moment. And indeed, the education industry and indeed every other industry in which we are mostly involved. So your support really does make a huge difference to a small podcast like us. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're hoping to send some bonus content your way soon. We know it's been a little while, but we're trying to get back on track with that. If you'd like to become a subscriber, you can find out more about that at pratchatpodcast.com. There is quite a bit of old bonus content that you would immediately get access to if you join up. And there are lots of other ways you can support the show. The main one is just telling other people about us. So you can review us online if you like. You can rate us somewhere. Those things help a little bit. But the real thing that helps us if you just tell people you like the show and just recommend us to people one-on-one, either via social media or in person, however you want to do it. That's how we get new listeners most of the time. And it really does help us grow our listener base, which helps make sure that we're sustainable and we can keep going until we get to every single book. Uh, So thank you, but I'm going to stop now because this episode is is more than long enough. Uh, So until next time, remember, apprehend, be humble in the face of the universe, do good. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Diane Sheldon Collins. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton. We're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat69. Nice. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendorChaps.com.